Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is a Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 122. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, fine and dandy. Well, we have, honestly, what a show today, and again, she's a big girl, she's, a, she's a, another hefty beast we're putting out, but there's just so much, honestly, I'm not joking, there is so much good stuff in this this programme, do you know what I mean, there's not enough hours in the day, to be quite honest, I'll give you a rundown what's coming in today's show. We have a guest editorial by our good friend, Lauren Santuro. We have Fact Article, the Transcribe Project. Now, this is a little interview I did. I actually carried this out last night in a boozer, in a pub, with Will Reese. Will is one of the volunteers who are transcribing. Next, we have Science News with JJ Campanella. Main fiction today comes from Michael F. Flynn. Michael F. Flynn wrote the Elfenheim novel, which was up for Hugo Ward. Then rounding up, we have Fact Article by Rod Barnett. Like I say, a chock a block, sure. But first off, I just want to kind of make you aware and, you know, for you just to stop and have a little look at the artwork that's come with this show. The artwork, and it's by Brian Woods, is stunning, to be quite honest. It is fantastic. And the good thing is that Brian just, you know, and this is what I love about Starship Sofa, Brian, Brian just got in touch with us and, you know, he says, Tony, I'm an illustrator, Would you, can I, is there a chance I can do a little bit of artwork for you? Do you know what I mean? And that was, oh, I had a look over at Brian's site and, wow, I thought, bloody hell, I would love to get Brian on board. Send him over the story and what's actually special about Brian and about this bit of artwork is... He's took the time and effort, and he's actually wrote up like a, a really nice blog piece with different pictures. You know the kind of the progress f- to get into this kind of final bit of art. So honestly, I encourage you all to go over to Brian's site. I will put the link on from the website. Go and have a look at how he's he kind of he started with you know with his ideas and eventually getting to this kind of final image that's you know that's with this clapping hands of God. What a gr- honestly, what a gr- Brian. I am. Love that picture. Thank you so much. So I'm going to step down from the reins from editorial again this week. And I'm going to hand you over to Larry Santuru. As you know, last week we kind of announced our intention for, you know, fingers crossed to kind of try to, you know, go for best fanzine in the Hugo Awards, you know, we kind of now, according to the wordage, we're eligible to to try for that. And Larry wrote this piece in the forums. And as soon as I read it, I kind of, you know, I thought that has got to be in audio. Do you know what I mean? Larry's, oh, it's just 
What he can kind of come up with words is just fantastic. So Larry, this editorial, sir. Hello, this is Creepy Cousin Larry speaking from the basement, uh, which is why this sounds a little different than normal. Uh, Tony asked me to do a verbal version of the blog entry I put on my uh, Bluffton in the Driftless blog last week on the subject of why Starship Sofa deserves a Hugo nomination this year. And I said I'd do it, but of course I can't just read the thing, so I'm going to just give a bit of a background to this. And of course, I'm not going to be able to compete with that cascade of logic that was put out with such passion by Matt Sanborn Smith last week, or certainly not with Amy Sturgis's, uh, Dr. Amy's, Dr. Eldritch Hobbit's grasp of sci-fi history, as well as her understanding of the bolts and nuts of science fiction ruledom. Um, see, I've already had one person on my blog take me to task for writing that the Hugos must begin to recognize podcasts, however, when, of course, the Hugos are just a collection of people who meet once a year to publicly applaud. I can't come up with good reasons or cite rules and thus suggest changes to them. All I've got are some some memories and some old hopes and long-ago prayers. When I was in the third grade... Miss Ash had a student teacher, a young guy. Yep, a guy. That was an amazement. Among all my chums, teachers were women, of course. Anyway, this almost a teacher, Mr. Herzog, was a little gawky, a little nuts, a lot awkward in that way that my friends and I would become when we got to Herzogian ages, 20, 21, maybe. Mr. Herzog was a science fiction nut. He couldn't teach that, however, not in 1950, not in Reading, Pennsylvania. So geeky, awkward Mr. Herzog taught a six-week unit on astronomy, another one of his passions. And astronomy took me by the ears and threw me into a wholly new place. Until that time, I was a normal kid, ready to become a doctor, a lawyer, a fireman, a cop, whatever moved me at the moment. But from that time in third grade, I wanted to be an astronomer and more. I became a science fiction reader. Then I found I was a science fiction fan. Later, I wanted to be an astronomer who also wrote science fiction. And later still, but still in the third grade, such is the speed with which passions, uh, like a good season of flu, run their course in kidhood. I also wanted to be the first guy to set foot on the moon. Astronomy and science fiction brought together. Yep. Now, for more on that, just catch my story some stages along the road toward our failure to reach the moon, which you'll find at Oral Delight number 62. Where am I going with this? Okay. Where I am going is that from third grade on, I wanted to be part of that community of people who were in love. I mean, love with something as big as lunar exploration and science fiction. Eventually, I found that my love for astronomy was actually more a love of distance, a love of the space between stars rather than of the stars themselves. And my my love was a love of the going and the companionship of the fellow travelers rather than a love of the destination. And somewhere along the way, I realized that there was a family out there that wanted me, me, an only kid from a little town in nowhere, PA. Ah, but then, 
John W. Campbell rejected my firstborn, a story called Return to Home, written, I think, in sixth grade with my pal, Alan Winkler. And then adulthood happened, and later still, mine became just two among the billions of earthbound feet who were not the first on the moon, and life pretty much ended. Though later, I actually picked up from the airport and drove to a reading in Chicago, the third and fourth feet that had touched our satellite. But I digress. Let me get to the point here. An interesting point is now being made with respect to bringing the science fiction community into the 21st century by making science fiction podcast sites, in this case specifically the starshipsofa.com, eligible for the reader-centric Hugo Awards. And to my pre-mid-20th century rearing, mentioning our now not-that-new century still sounds like a science fiction tale being spun out with my very own life. Anyway, the distinguished science fiction scholar and writer, Dr. Amy H. Sturgis, makes a compelling case in her editorial here last week and at her blog at eldritchhobbit.livejournal.com. That's http colon slash slash eldritchhobbit.livejournal.com slash 284404.html. Pause here for a moment. If you don't know what the Hugos are, I point you to Wikipedia. And of course, if you don't know about the Hugos, you probably aren't listening anyway, so forget I just said that. The world of podcasting, and if you don't know what that's about, you really aren't here now, are you, is not exactly new, but it's not that old either. By now, a dedicated fan can hear on demand pretty much anything he or she wants. Many sites provide original material, written, produced, narrated, and cast specifically for them. With regard to science fiction, fantasy, and horror, uh, the number of these audio sites is growing. So far as the number of customers alone, the larger podcast communities probably rival if they not yet outstrip the ink-on-paper efforts such as the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Analog, Cemetery Dance, and others. I want to emphasize the use of the word community here. That's what all that nostalgic rambling at the top was about. It's about community. Readers of specific magazines become, well, loyal readers. Podcasts seem to spawn community. Now, this, to my way of thinking, is a rough echo of the way that the early fanzines and prozines created core groups of readers and followers in the 1930s and 40s of the last century. And God, isn't that fun to say that? The last century. Podcast communities echo groups that gathered around such figures as H.P. Lovecraft and his pals who maintain links with each other through thousands of letters. A good thing in itself, but something that isn't necessarily pertinent today. The podcasts are also a shadow of the Futurians. That was a group of science fiction fans, cum writers, cum agents and editors, cum publishers, who formed the soul of the golden age of science fiction in the 1940s. These were people such as Isaac Asimov, and just keep your thoughts to yourself on that. Isaac Asimov, Damon Knight, Frederick Pohl, Donald Wolheim, uh, James Blish, Jack Gillespie, Cyril Kornbluth, others. Uh, these were the Futurians. 
I emphasize again, these core groups, communities, certainly, families, if you will, gathered in single cities or in small regions of the country, outlanders such as Ray Bradbury, who, though he was born in the Midwest, grew up on the West Coast, speaks of making an epic road trip from L.A. to New York City to meet with the members of the Eastern Fraternity, the Futurians. These guys, and, and I say guys in the most gender-neutral way, there were girls too, Virginia Kidd and Judith Merrill and others, gathered, they hung together, they drank and sang songs together around kitchen tables, and together and apart made some great literature in the wake of their communalizing. When I was a kid and discovering astronomy and fiction, writing and the like, I used to idolize and perhaps idealize, not so much the people, but the times they must have had. I wanted to have been a part of that something new that they were bringing into being, the beginning, the birthing of a form. I wasn't, and I always felt as though I'd missed something as important as having upon my leg the first foot to touch the moon. The pace, as I've mentioned, is quicker now, with Starship Sofa, Escape Pod, and the like. The, the community happens globally, instantaneously, weekly. While the community of the Starship isn't necessarily as personal as the Futurians, it, it is moving newness at a faster pace. While Ray Bradbury may have motored L.A. to New York City to gather every now and again with his pals, I've met face-to-face -face only once with a fellow Sophonaut, that was the wonderful Diane Severson Morey, who, raised in Wisconsin, now lives in Germany and is married to an Italian nuclear engineer. I met Diane and her husband and her father while they visited here in Chicago, but I knew her quite well by the time we'd met. I had heard her read, we'd talked, we'd seen each other via Skype. She knew me from my writing, my narration of my own and other people's work, and from forums in the Starship. I know that on another leg of that same trip, Diane visited Tony at his home in the north of England. I mention this to point out the fact that the relationships between Diane, Tony, myself, dozens of other sofa-nauts were already of long duration, long duration in this case being almost a year and a half. Let me point here to one exemplar of community. Spider and Gene Robinson are icons of contemporary science fiction. Gene has cancer, a nasty form of biliary cancer which has drained the Robinsons' finances. Worldwide, the community has come to their aid. This past Christmas, as many of you remember, the Starship commissioned and produced an original piece of long-form fiction which it auctioned off in an ink-on-paper one-off book and sold hundreds of PDF downloads of the story with original illustrations by Sophonaut regular sketcher Skeet. Thanks to joint efforts by Matt Smith and others, that novella, my Lord Dickens's declaration, raised some several thousands of dollars for the Robinsons. Not huge amounts of money, not cancer money, but certainly something that a family, a community, would do for one of its own. And my point is, podcast sites, and in my experience, this podcast site in particular, are matrices around which families, communities continue to grow. This echoes the past and the birth of science fiction as a contemporary form, as the form we know today. 
But the Futurians, by the way, continue through to the present. That batch of happy fans and pros are linked to most, if many at least, of the writers, editors, publishers working in the business today. Writer Donald A. Walheim became publisher Donald A. Walheim, whose name continues today in Daw Books, D-A-W. Author Gene Wolfe's agent is at the Virginia Kid Agency, which continues to represent many of the premier names in science fiction. While Virginia Kid herself passed away some time ago, her home is still the office for the agency that bears her name. That house was a physical home, away from home, for the Futurians, for whom Ms. Kid's living room and kitchen was the hearth around which those writers literally gathered. Her husband, James Blish, and his pals, Isaac Asimov, Fred Pohl, and a couple dozen more of the iconic writers of that golden age, all people that still-in-use home office in woodsy Pennsylvania. What is happening here, online, may not spark as many marriages, divorces, pregnancies, as did the face-to-face communities of the past, but the voices that are coming out of these little internet tubes are beginning to change the form of fiction-making. One might even say what is happening here gets back to the root of writing, the telling of stories around a fire. And I think that the people nominating and voting for the Hugos do need to take a good listen and a look at the podcasts and begin to honor those in the medium, specifically Starship Sofa. There you go. What do you think about that? Now, I just want to ask you, is just please just stop and just have a think of how Larry's kind of put that together. That is, Larry has honestly summed what the Starship Sofa is up so well. And I'm, you know what I mean? I am like... When I listen to that, sometimes, you know, I put these shows together and, you know, trust us, it's sometimes, you know, week in, week out, you know, four years have we been going now, it gets sometimes to get to like a little bit of kind of pressure builds up, you know, and Larry sent, I know, I seen that post and Larry sent, you know, I asked Larry, will you record that, Larry, for us? Is there a chance? Larry sent it over and I'd read the post on on his blog, you know, and I'd, I'd read it twice. I'd read it in the forums and I read it on the, on his blog. And Larry, you know, did you listen to it? Did you have a, 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 you know, Larry, yeah, I've got it, thank you, you know, and I hadn't listened to it. And I've just listened to it there now when I'm kind of putting this show together. And I hope it, honestly, because it hit me right in the heart there. Larry has nailed this, what this whole thing of Starship Sova, this whole ethos is. Larry's just nailed that, hit that nail right on the head. And I say, please just stop and have a think about what everyone here is trying to do you know it's getting to the point now where it is just more than science fiction do you know what i mean there is there has been births you know since this show's been going this community there's been births there unfortunately there's been a few deaths as well we are now this like little hub and like i say i cannot i kind of put the words in the way so poetically the way larry has done it you know what i mean there was those tears nearly when i was listening to that do you know what i mean and that's just like this the core values of starships over larry's just covered them brilliantly you know so larry thank you so much and you know why not try for a hugo do you know what i mean there's actually been some kind of negative oh, it's like unreal negative comments on you know some of the posts please go out and have a look i'm not going to kind of get involved but it seems like a lot of the the old vanguard for, for want of a better word 
is a little bit disgruntled that maybe, you know, podcast isn't, you know, it isn't kind of written down fiction. You can't read a podcast, so it shouldn't be eligible for a Hugo Award. Things are changing, you know what I mean? Things are changing, like Larry says, very, very quickly. You know, hand on my heart, I believe Starship Sova is a fanzine. Do you know what I mean? We have stories, we have community involvement, we have interviews with the writers, videos, you know what I mean? We flew to France and interviewed Michael Moorcock. What else can Starship be? We are a fanzine. We might be the new, you know what I mean? It might be a new era. And like I say, some of that, the old timers there, you know, it takes a little bit of getting used to something so new. You know, and hats off to the Hugo Awards. They've recognised, you know, there's a new, there's a shift. You know, they've even put in the words and any other media. Do you know what I mean? So they're switched on. They know it's happening. Just some of the old timers or some of the ones that kind of put their heads in the sand don't want to realise and don't want to believe it's coming. It's coming. Might not be Starship Sova. I hope it is. But, you know, if it's not me, not us, it'll be someone else. If you think Starship Sova deserves a Hugo, please mention it on your blogs. The cut-off date for the nomination round is the 13th of March. So if you went to the Hugo Awards last year, you are entitled to vote. And if you're going this year to AussieCon or you're a kind of participating member, you're there, you're able to vote as well. Is Starship Sova worth a Hugo? I hope you think it is. Next up is, which is this just, honestly, this was fantastic. There's a little, I've got a little audio interview with Will Reese, And actually, we explain everything in the audio article. So I'm just going to switch this on now and let you listen to my good self and Will Reese in a pub in Newcastle, the Collingwood Arms. And could our heckers find this pub to begin with? It was in Jesmond. And I was meeting Will there to kind of have a little chat about, you know, this transcribe project. And I got the wrong name. I went looking for the totally pub that was closed down. But eventually, I met up with Will. So I'm joined here by my good friend, Mr. Will Reese. Now, Will, just to give everyone a kind of a little what's going on here, Will has foolishly, foolishly volunteered to do the transcribe. And I didn't realise that first one kind of Will signed up. That Will actually just lives over the water in Newcastle, or just kind of Jesmond area. And I thought it would be lovely just to get Will on and actually see how, like, one of the transcribers, like a face-to-face, actually, and meet one of the transcribers and just see how it's doing for Will. And what was really nice is I was, I was like, copied into one of Will's emails to one of the other transcribers, Gilderan. And I read Will, I read Will's, and it's even now is making us laugh. I read Will's email, and it was along the lines of because Gilran, if you've got to bear in mind, is a professional transcriber. And when I, you know, when I put this shout out, everyone just like me, just like a listener, and just you know wanted to have a little bash at this transcribing. And Will's exactly the same. And but Gilran is a professional. And then I seen this email that Will had you know sent off to Gilran. And, and honestly, the end of it was really the special bit. It was like, no, honestly, Gilran, I, I need a little bit of help. Like really help. I need help. So Will. <laughs> How's how's it going? Well, I've got to be honest, Tony. It's going a whole lot better, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's what I, you know. Like I say, you, you dropped that email to Gilran, and I was thinking, 
you're going to come off the rails, you know. And I, and I didn't realise how like hard it is because, like I say, I've even just been having a look at everyone else's work, and even just trying to proofread it. And we've been talking about this just a second ago. It's a nightmare for me to read it. So I'm thinking Absolutely. it must be doubly a nightmare for you to kind of transcribe it. Well, I've, I've got to be honest. From um, the time that you said let's start this transcribe project, I was like. Oh, love Starship Sofa I've got to get involved in that um, so I was like yeah Tony sure I'd be up for it and then you know one thing led to another and that was kind of late November early December time and I was not really getting on that well with it and I asked some people for some help to fellow transcribers about what software to use and um, poor old Steve Steve Bickle I think is one of the other transcribers and he suggested to me some uh, software the transcriber software and I tried it and I've got a horrible feeling. I sent him rather a nasty email back saying it doesn't work for me. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I left it. And then Gilderan, as you say, came on as a professional transcriber. I emailed him, cried out for help. And as I replied to him, I said, it's purely a state of mind, absolutely a state of mind. And uh, he gave me some good positive encouragement. And uh, I reread Gail Posey's um, help document with regards to the transcriber software. And before I knew it, I was away, and now I can't believe how much fun I'm having, which is quite sad. Actually, we're, we're in a, a little pub called the Collingwood Arms, and I've, I've noticed, Will, you're drinking quite a bit. I'm sure that's... that's Nervousness. <laughs> so, and like I say, we've had... I'm not saying years have had plenty of time, because it's, it's an unreal thing to ask for, you know, especially when we've yeah. talk, been talking about it before, to try and cipher what myself and Kieran's been talking about. All right. You've got a deadline of end of, well, isn't it the end of March where I'm like, there's a deadline where the first draft has got to be in before yeah, well, yeah. end of April, it's like the final cut-off, that's it. But yep. this first deadline, do you think you're going to get there? Oh, undoubtedly. <laughs> undoubtedly, Tony. You know, Have another drink. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be doing any tonight, you'll be pleased to know. Um, no, seriously, I think you know it should be fine. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've got one of the shorter episodes. It's only about 55 minutes long, uh, a Harlan Ellison episode. Um, so I think you know other people have drawn the short straw. I know Phil Ackerman has, for some reason, decided that he's going to do two. Um, uh, yes. So a massive round of applause well, for actually, Phil for taking Phil, it on. Phil has actually took on another one as well because, unfortunately, one of the transcribers had to pull out because I think, um, no, if I remember rightly, oh, a grandmother died. You know what I mean? And, and like it was such a, you know what I mean, complicated thing. And I thought, oh, we better not. You know, I don't want to push push the, um, the transcriber. You know, I'm not really bothered. Can we just get this finished? <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the transcribers had a. And Phil just, I know, I emailed Phil because I knew he'd, I knew he'd finished. Do you know what I mean? So I just thought, Phil, is there a chance? You know, and like, see, are you at a loose end? <laughs> he's took it on again, and do you know what I mean? And I'm like, see, Phil's not Gilderan, so Gil- Gilderan did his show in, and I'm sure like a day, six hours. I mean, Gilderan's an absolute legend you know when I mean? it comes to making suggestions about what to do. Um, but Phil again obviously put his heart and soul into getting the first two done but genuinely once you decide you're going to do it and you sit down and pay some attention to it it's actually thoroughly enjoyable I'm fortunate in the fact that I'm from the local area I'm quite used to speaking to people with your uh, dialect and twang um, whereas those people who perhaps are a little bit less used to uh, the northeast accent are probably going to struggle a little bit and wonder why there are so many likes in there 
we, we were talking about this before. We, we, I cannot explain. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, I think that you you hit the nail on the head there. It, it's what makes it actually the show as well. Do you know what I mean? But I tell you what, I'm interested to find out. Are you have you come to Starship Sofa? After these, like, you know, them, them early sh- shows, do you mean? Because I think main key, when main key started off, I think we got about this, something like show sixty-seven. So, have you? Co- did you ever hear yeah. them when they originally were aired? No, no, so, no, no. So, you, really, you've just kind of heard me, and then you've kind of I've sent you this file, and then there's somebody new on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I heard you when it was it was just you and nobody else. Um, I forget what show number it's been, but. It, I'd like to say it feels like a lifetime, um, but that actually <laughs> sounds moderately you're... detrimental. Um, but, you know, I've never heard Kieran before until I started listening to this show, and then, you know, the first time I heard it, I actually just played it through my iPod as I was walking to work, and all of a sudden Kieran's voice popped up, and, you know, I'm quite shocked to hear him. But, um, yeah, just you. Uh, and now just you and Kieran talking about Harlan Ellison and I've got to say there are a lot of swear words in the uh, episode that I'm listening into Is there? yeah so I don't know whether they'll appear in the book or whether I'll just have oh, to yes. start no, exclamation no. mark no. question mark and no. uh, hash them out keep, keep them in because <laughs> it's funny when we, we start this and even now I wouldn't probably take, like, even take them out but I think at the time you know it was a, when we were kind of probably doing them we might have come to a patch where it was ooh, I'll have to edit that one out, Kieran. Do you know what I mean? Because I think Kieran was quite predominantly, you know, they were just, they would come as the natural, you know what I mean? Yeah, can yeah, have, yeah. Can I have some eggs for breakfast, Tony, in a, in a cup of tea? And yeah. it was just, that was the way it went, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yes, keep them, you know, keep them in. But what, I think what I'm interested to find out is just, like you see, you're constantly hearing me all the time. Was that a, a, such a, like a, a stop or a, a brick wall to hear someone else? Especially Kieran's voice, because Kieran is... Has he's a whole load of like different, you know, like the theirs are all coming in the wind. Oh yeah, I mean, his his use of grammar or not uh, <laughs> is entirely different. Um, no, I think it was a refreshing change, especially as the kind of the structure of the episode is completely different from what we hear now with regards to the traditional what I view as the traditional Starship Sofa episodes. Far more conversational um, in its tone, obviously, and discussing you know the history of a writer. Um, and I think that comes across a lot better as a dialogue than it does as a monologue. So for the sorts of episodes they are, I don't think you could have it in any other way. And actually, it's quite refreshing almost to hear that. Um, I just wish there was a way that I could get my hands on all those episodes. Oh, hold on. We're all transcribing them. There will be. <laughs> well, actually, they were. And they're probably, they, I think they are as well, because Josh is going to sort out the website again. And he's, they're going to be up there again for, like, download... And well, I tell you what, it was weird. And like you, again, you've hit it spot on. There came a time when I realised, you know, because I was doing them. Actually, when me and Kieran like kind of the part always, there was about thirty of them where I did myself. You know, up there was something like show one hundred, and it wasn't. You know what I mean? There was something kind of missing. Do you know what I mean? And I knew somewhere along the line something had to change. Do you know what I mean? I either pack it in all together or I kind of really radically change it. And it just so happened it all came about with Moorcock and we went to see Moorcock you know and then he gave us them three stories and then that's you know got the, the kind of ball rolling but I'm just interested that you know in the kind of transcribe it how, how much t- kind of time do you, do you give yourself or is it 
Do you give yourself like say an hour a night, or is it something like Christ? I've got that at the weekend. I'm gonna have to put an hour in. And no, 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 no. I mean, I'm unfortunately uh, when I started doing my uh, degree course at the University of Northumbria here in Newcastle, I was very much the sort of person that leaves their essays until the last minute. I wrote my twenty thousand word dissertation in about four and a half days. I barely got any sleep, and uh, I'm afraid to say I haven't learnt my lesson. Um, I probably started my transcribing about four days ago when you confirmed that you were actually going to be here. Never. Haven't, haven't told you that. Uh, pleased I bought you a drink beforehand so you can't lynch me. Um, but it's been very much a case of sitting down on the sofa in front of the Olympics, both headphones in, being able to peer at the TV over the top of the laptop. Um, I've got the transcribe on and I've set 30 second intervals between you and Kieran talking and I can get I'd say 80% of what you say down in those 30 seconds and then I'll re-listen to it again get the next 20% and re-listen to it again and hopefully pretty much tidy everything up Um, I'm trying not to set myself too much time aside because I'm fairly confident that I can get it done by next weekend and then spend the rest of the time... Have another drink. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for asking. Um, And then take the time to uh, kind of format it properly and give it a good proofread and ensure that when I post it up uh, for the other transcribers to look at that I'm not going to get laughed at too. (laughs) And am I right in thinking you're using the transcribe software? Yeah, I'm using... Explain, just because I haven't even went there, I haven't even touched it. Well, as I say, Gail has written a fantastic um, transcriber for dummies guide that's up on Google Docs at the moment, um, available to every transcriber because she's emailed it around. Um, And I am using the transcribe software, which I downloaded for free. Uh, You can uh, upload your podcast or piece of work that you're listening to and split it into 30 second or a minute second or however many segments you want and then you can ask it to play those segments in a continuous loop and you can pause it using different keystrokes and I'm doing that whilst also using and typing into Word and just using Alt and Tab to alternate between the two pieces of software and using an enormous number of keystrokes in an effort to get everything down. Um, Transcriber is not a bad piece of software. Apparently Gilteran has some all-singing, all-dancing voice recognition using a joystick with your foot kind of software that apparently I read. Although what he does underneath the desk while his hands are typing is his own business. Well, and this is the funny thing. This is the flick here. He emailed us, Gilteran emailed us a few, just before the Olympics started and says, Tony, I'm going away to, to kind of up to his mums in Canada to watch the Olympics to really just kind of chill out. He says, I'm looking, you know, like kind of through the emails and through everything, all the correspondence. He says, I'm just wondering if maybe a few might not get it done. He says, do you want us to take a few of them, right, a few of them away with us and I'll do them. <laughs> On a busman's holiday. <laughs> right? So he's took... So I was like, Gilderan, are you sure? So he's now took, I think, three, maybe four shows with him, and he's going to do them as backups, right? That's... <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to have a look between his ears. I'm not entirely sure everything's there. Um, <laughs> it's just bizarre, do you know what I mean? But, you know, if he loves it, he, you know, he was free in giving me his advice and it was welcomed. It con- it completely changed the way I thought about how I was going to approach things and it, you yes, know, it you mean, a total few, change of attitude and positive thinking has really helped in my transcribing. A few, few kind of words, you know what I mean? He, he, like you say, and he, I thought that was really good because he didn't say, I'll do it for you. Do you know what I mean? He just mm. gave you some good advice, which because that would be horrible, I think, if someone had to kind of 
I often Altego, but and then you can think, oh, fucking hell, I never got it sorted out. You know what I mean? And at least you, you know you're gonna get there. Come see, you touched it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's all right for you. You've just given it to everybody else to look after. Well, honestly, well, uh, you know what I mean. I'm chuffed a bit. You're on board with it. You know, thank you so much for coming on. Like I say, I honestly. Even listening to myself, could not do that. And, you know, hand on heart, I could not do it. It's you know what I mean. So I'm everyone that's getting involved in transcribe. I'm just so proud of you. You know, I'm so dying for the book to come out, just to share with everyone. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, it's not just you know we're kind of getting this book out so everyone can. It's it's this. I know it's not, I keep on cliche again. It's this community thing where it's all we're involved. Do you know what I mean? And what I'm, the special bit is these bios. I'm getting these all to do like a, a before. And then after bio with a before photograph and an after photograph, so you're, like, you're all happy, happy, you know, keen to tackle this. And then the end of the, you know, the bio, bloody hell! I've- oh, Tony, I mean, it, it is totally a community-based thing, and you know, I think we were all inspired by Starship Sofa and thought, oh, we we want to be part of like something like Starship Sofa Stories, and that's why I think you've got so much buy-in from all of us to start off with. And I don't know about anybody else, but we all, I'm sure, we all feel like we listen to it every day and know that there are other people sitting around and listening. And certainly, with the transcriber network that we have, we're bashing emails around to each other and just all supporting each other throughout it all. And it's just a fantastic project to be involved in. Well. Will, Will Reese, you have until the end of March for draft one, end of April for the final draft. Thank you so much for meeting up with us. A pleasure, thank you for having me. Take good care. One of the nicest lads you would meet. What a lovely guy. Will, I had a, a ball of a time. Do you know what I mean? I kept thinking about it all the way, you know, when I, I kind of went to work after that, and it was just a, a lovely night. Thank you so much. So the Transcribe project is moving ahead. Yes, it, you know what I mean? There is some struggles. Just to give you like a little update for everyone, I'd like to say in the interview, there is the final deadline, you know, for everyone. I think there's about 12 people now, like, in, and I still get, you know, I'm still getting emails of people. Can I help, Tony? Can I do it, you know? But I've, now I've had to kind of cut off and say, well, I wouldn't be ready, actually, unless you're someone like Gilderan who can write out these transcribes in a half a day. The final, for the first draft, is the end of March. Then we're going to give ourselves... Did you notice where I added myself in there? (laughs) I can't even read them. Do you know what I mean? They're so embarrassing to read for me. I can't even read the things. But cut off dates the 31st of March, and then that final month, the April month, is where it's kind of the final drafts are kind of hammered out, and then everything's shipped over to D, and D's going to put it all together. And it, I think it's sometime in early June when we're looking for release date of the Transcribe project. I will keep you informed. <laughs> Next up is Mr. J.J. Campanella. And like I say, again, J.J. Campanella has been with Starship Sofa right from the very beginning. Do you know what I mean? Amazing narrator. You know, he's done some of those Hugo Award stories, you know, the Ted Chang one, all sorts. And a regular with his science news, Jim. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this February 2010 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening, Jim Campanella. I want to start off this broadcast by talking about a TV program my kids watch. Both my almost four-year-old and my almost two-year-old love this show and get quite excited when it comes on television. Personally, I find the show bizarre and more than a bit disturbing, but I'll get to that. 
And the name of the show is Dinosaur Train. Now, those of you with preschool kids may be familiar with this educational show, but let me tell the rest of you about it. The show follows the adventures of a family of pterodons who have adopted a T-Rex as a child. This alone made me wonder what type of medication the writers of the show might be on, but let me continue. The show also posits that dinosaurs, at some point in their multi-million year history, not only had trains and train stations like those of modern times, but they also had the technology to build time tunnel-like contraptions that could allow said trains with dinosaurs riding upon them to travel from time period to time period to visit each other. My favorite episode, by the way, dealt with dinosaur poop and how all dinosaurs poop and how huge dinosaurs like the Megasaurus had poop like the size of boulders. My daughter's only comment was that she was glad that her poop was not that big because it wouldn't fit in the toilet. And I certainly was not one to argue with that observation. At this point, you may be wondering where the blue blazes I am going with this dribble. Please be patient a moment and you'll see. Now, one of the annoyances about the show is that the dinosaurs are brightly colored in almost every instance. I wish I could show you, but the T-Rexes are bright orange with blue spots and the pterodons are blue and bright green. And I've done my reading and I've seen Jurassic Park and I'm, well, I was pretty darn sure that dinosaurs are dull colored greens and browns like modern lizards. I concluded that the brightly colored dinos had to be more of the medicinal effects on the TV show's designers, right? Well, I was completely blown away by an article from Dr. Michael Benton, a paleontologist at the University of Britain in the UK, who has evidence that the animators of Dinosaur Train are not simply highly medicated. The research was published late in January in the journal Nature. Benton found microscopic features in fossils of dinosaurs that actually contained the remnants of pigments. The structures provide new clues about what these creatures actually looked like, including the possibility of patches or stripes with a sporty yellow or a red-brown color scheme. The fossils, some of them described for the first time, were found in northeastern China and well-preserved with sub-micrometer-sized particles called melanosomes. In modern-day creatures, these melanosomes are pigment-bearing structures that come in two forms. There are cigar-shaped eumelanosomes that hold black melanin, and then there are the egg-shaped or near-spherical pheomelanosomes that contain pigments ranging from reddish-brown through yellow. The new analyses by Benton and his colleagues are the first to report structures that appear to be pheomelanosomes in the fossil record. The new findings provide tantalizing clues that dinosaurs and early birds weren't limited to a drab color scheme that I believed was the case. For example, the pattern of melanosomes in the fossils of Confucius Ornus, a bird that lived about 125 million years ago in what is now China, show the creature likely had patches of white and black and orange-brown feathers. Cynosauroteryx, a dinosaur that lived in the same area a million or so years after Confucius Ornus probably sported alternating rings of white and orange bristle-like filaments on its tail. It turns out the scientists have been drawing dinosaurs with drab color palettes for years for just one reason. They had no idea what color dinosaurs actually were, so they were not going to go out on a limb and guess. Their best guess up till now was that dinosaurs were a similar coloration to modern lizards, much like I suggested. 
but it appears that they may have been wrong. Modern birds, the descendants of dinosaurs, may actually give us a better clue as to the original color of ancient dinosaurs than lizards do. I guess my lesson now is not to scoff at children's shows. The next story I heard from one of my friends and colleagues who participated in the annual meeting of the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology in Seattle last month. She told me the story, and frankly, I was astounded. For years, scientists have pretty much agreed that plants are plants and animals are animals and never the twain shall meet. Animals do not have chlorophyll and do not photosynthesize, and plants are almost always primarily autotrophs. That is, they make their own food. Well... Dr. Sidney K. Pierce of the University of South Florida has apparently found an animal that breaks those rules. He has discovered a sea slug that has stolen enough genes to become the first animal shown to make chlorophyll like a plant. Now, ironically, the sea slug, called Alicia chlorotica, is shaped like a leaf itself, and it already had a reputation for kidnapping the photosynthesizing organisms and some genes from algae. Now it turns out that the slug has acquired enough stolen goods to make an entire plant-chemical-making pathway work inside its animal body. The slugs can manufacture the most common form of chlorophyll, which is the green pigment in plants that captures energy from sunlight. Pierce used a radioactive tracer to show that the slugs were making the pigment called chlorophyll A themselves and not simply relying on chlorophyll reserves stolen from the algae that the slugs eat. Pierce said that this green slug goes far beyond animals, such as corals that host live-in microbes that share the bounties of their photosynthesis. Most of those hosts tuck in the symbiotic cells in crevices or pockets among host cells and allow them to live happily there while taking advantage of their proximity. Pierce's slug takes just parts of cells, the little green photosynthetic organelles called chloroplasts, from the algae it eats. The slug's highly branched gut network engulfs these stolen bits and holds them inside slug cells. That is not just symbiosis. Some related slugs also engulf chloroplasts, but E. chlorotica alone preserves the organelles in working order for a whole slug lifetime of nearly a year. The slug readily sucks the innards out of the algal filaments whenever they're available, but in good light, multiple meals aren't essential to it. Scientists have actually shown that once a young slug has slurped its first chloroplast meal from one of its few favored species of algae, the slug does not have to eat again for pretty much the rest of its life. All it has to do is sunbathe. This is an amazing finding, not just for evolution in the tree of life, which, by the way, has now been thrown a major curveball, but can you imagine if we could do this with higher animals, with just a bit of genetic engineering, photosynthetic cattle, pigs, chickens... Imagine how much we could save on feeding our food animals. There's only one problem. You'd have to get used to, um, well, yeah, I have to say it, green eggs and ham. Okay, <laughs> onward and upward to the next story. Well, for years, scientists have been warning you that cigarettes are bad for you. The laundry list just gets longer and worse all the time. Emphysema, lung, mouth, and throat cancer, heart disease, strokes, etc., we all know this, and thanks to the amazing addictive capacity of nicotine, there isn't much that many people have been able to do about stopping. Well, here is another horror story about cigarettes that may induce you to put a nicotine patch on your arm. Dr. Amy Sapkata of the University of Maryland noticed something odd when she was looking at the smoking literature. 
She noted, quote, nearly every paper that you pick up discussing the health effects of cigarettes starts out with something to the effect that smokers and people exposed to secondhand smoke experience high rates of respiratory infection. But nobody ever talks about the cigarettes themselves as being a source of those infections. Unquote. Well, Sapkota's new data published this month in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives now suggests that that's a distinct possibility. What is frightening about Sapkota's data is that if bacteria actually are alive in cigarettes, then just handling cigarettes or putting an unlit cigarette in your mouth could be enough to cause an infection. The idea that cigarettes carry infections is not something new. We've known for years that cigarette tobacco carries plant viruses. I remember when I was a graduate student working on my doctorate, there were signs all over the big research greenhouses saying that you were forbidden from even bringing tobacco cigarettes into them for fear that you would pass along all sorts of plant viruses that would throw a serious monkey wrench into what might amount to years of somebody's research. However, the idea of live human pathogens in tobacco is quite new and not just idle conjecture. Several research teams have isolated bacteria from tobacco that could grow out in petri dishes. Sabkota says that those earlier investigations tended to hunt for and grow only one or two species of interest. What's novel in Sabkota's study is that she and her colleagues probed for genetic material from any and every bacterium in a cigarette's tobacco. Under sterile conditions, they opened up cigarettes and then performed a series of tests on the tobacco. For instance, they isolated all of the ribosomal material and then homed in on its long, series-specific DNA stretches known as the 16S regions. If you remember, ribosomes are those structures inside cells that actually make proteins. There's a big difference between the ribosomes in bacteria and the ribosomes in other organisms. Since plants do not have those 16S pieces of DNA, they could focus in on all the possible bacterial species present and compare the sequences of what they found to 16S sequences characteristic of known bacterial species. Sapkota probed for almost 800 different bacteria and found matches to many hundreds in the four brands of cigarettes she screened. Marlboro Red, Camel, Cool Filter Kings, and Lucky Strike Original Red. Sapkota bought all those packs of smokes in Lyon, France, where she was performing her research. She does note, however, that the companies who make those products represent the most commonly smoked brands in westernized countries and the three major tobacco companies. Among the germs whose DNA laced these cigarettes were Campylobacter, which can cause food poisoning, and Guillaume-Barre syndrome, Clostridium, which causes food poisoning and pneumonia, Cordybacteria, also associated with pneumonia and other diseases, Klebsiella and Pseudomonas originosa, both of which are associated not only with pneumonia, but also with urinary tract infections, and a number of Staphylococcus species that underlie the most common and serious hospital-associated infections. Wow, doesn't that just make you want to run out and light one up right now? Probably not. All right, I'm going to end with a story about cannibals. Well, it's sort of about cannibals. Kuru is a disease that was discovered by missionary doctors in New Guinea Islanders in the 1950s. Now, these islanders performed what you can call ritual cannibalism. 
Ritual cannibalism is eating your friend, neighbor, or relative when they die as a form of respect, to take up a part of their spirit and memorialize them to some degree. Well, Kuru was found among these cannibals, primarily women and children. And the symptoms of Kuru include coordination problems, eventually becoming quite severe, difficulty walking, and this is called cerebellar ataxia, difficulty swallowing, tremors, muscle jerks, these are called myoclonus. Difficulty swallowing and the inability to feed yourself leads to malnutrition and starvation, and it can take up to 30 years or even longer to develop the symptoms. That's a very long incubation period. It took a while for the doctors to figure out why it was mainly women and children that got the disease. Eventually, they noticed that at the funeral ceremonies, the men got served first and got all the best bits of muscle and tissue from the honored dead person. The women and children got served second and got the not-so-nice bits like the nervous system and the organs. The reason that the women got sick is because they specifically were being exposed to a pathogenic agent that the men were avoiding. It turns out that the disease is passed along by eating the brains of the dead who are infected by a very strange protein called a prion. A prion is a protein that infectiously causes normal proteins to fold abnormally, which in turn causes still other related proteins to do the same. This affects the other protein's ability to function. It takes so long to show symptoms because it takes a very long time to convert over the good proteins and cause them to become bad. But once that occurs, then it's all downhill. Once the symptoms actually start to arise after the incubation period, well, then the disease is fatal in about a year. Prions are the same agents that cause mad cow disease in cows, scrapie in sheep, chronic wasting disease in deer, and other rare human diseases such as gerstmann straussler schenker disease, fatal familial insomnia, and Creutzfeldt-Jakob syndrome. In some weird sense, the prion is kind of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of molecule. The prion is the Mr. Hyde, which does all the bad things and causes the fatal neurological disease. In that twisted Mr. Hyde form, the prion protein causes the fatal brain-wasting diseases. And up until now, it's been very unclear what the normal form of the protein might be. A new study from Dr. Adriano Aguzzi at the University of Zurich reported in the last Nature Neuroscience issue, suggests what the Dr. Jekyll version of the prion might be doing in our bodies. The normal form of the protein, which is typically found in neurons in people and other mammals, is the good guy. The protein may direct cells called Schwann cells to wrap around neurons and produce myelin, a type of insulation that aids electrical communication between nerve cells. This newly discovered role for the normal Dr. Jekyll form of the prion protein could link the protein to nerve disorders called peripheral neuropathies. In the new study, Aguzzi studied several different strains of genetically engineered mice that lack the good Dr. Jekyll prion protein. The researchers found that the mutant mice from all the strains had abnormal myelin sheaths around their sciatic nerves. That's the long nerve that runs from the lower back to the foot. Electrical signals travel more slowly down the sciatic nerves in mice that lacked good prion proteins compared with mice that had intact prion proteins. 
One interesting observation that Aguzzi made was that restoring the functioning of the good prion proteins to the nerve cells allowed the myelin cheese to be required. However, putting prions back into Schwann cells did not. That result suggests that the prion protein is needed in the neuron, but not in the Schwann cell. Additional experiments show that the myelin repairs happened only when the prion protein could be snipped in half. That cleavage frees part of the protein, which then signals the Schwann cells to make myelin. The researchers don't know yet what cuts the prion protein or how the Schwann cells detect the signal at all. Now, in the past, a wide variety of functions have been proposed for the prion protein, but researchers have not been able to replicate results using different strains of mice. Aguzzi's new study seems to be the first reliable one that finds the same results for many genetically different types of mice. If it turns out that Aguzzi's work really is correct, this could cause a problem for scientists doing research to make cattle resistant to prions and mad cow disease. The way they've been doing that has been by genetically engineering cows to simply not have the good Dr. Jekyll version of the prion protein at all. Presumably, if the animal doesn't have that protein in their brains, then they can't be infected by the bad hide version of the prion protein. If a goosey's work is correct, and if the prion protein does play a role in myelin formation, that could pose a problem for gene therapy that removes the gene from cattle and other animals. Mice and other animals that don't have the gene can't be infected with prion diseases, but the question remains whether removing that gene, removing that protein, can cause peripheral nerve problems. The question is still completely up in the air. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Think twice about joining Joe Camel and lighting up that coffin nail, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And hey, be honest. Aren't you guys missing the ant stories about now? Good night, everyone. Jim, what can I say? You know, and I was I was telling actually Will because Will's a big fan of JJ Campanella's. You know, and he says he just loves. You know, every, you know when JJ Campanella comes on, it's just it's such a like a pleasure to listen to Jim. And I was telling Will, I says, you know, every time I get like an, an audio file off JJ Campanella, you know, I get this little email saying, <laughs> Tony, I've had a hell of a week or a hell of a month. It's so busy, you know, newborn baby, I've so much work. And, and it honestly, it sounds like it is a pressure vessel with JJ Campanella. And Jim, honestly, <laughs> what can I say? I would fly over there and I would massage your feet. You know what I mean? Please keep them coming. You're building up a, a great little fan base yet who just love your work. And what's a few sleepless nights? Next up is we have this fantastic short story by Michael Flynn. I'll give you a little heads up by Michael Flynn. Like say, remember a few years ago, myself and Kieran, we did the Hugo Awards and we took it up on ourselves to kind of read the whole of the novels that were up for Hugo Awards that year. That was the year that it was Rainbow's End, if I remember rightly, won the Hugo Award. And Peter Watts' story was in their blind sight. There was Elfenheim by Michael F. Flynn. And I think there was... Naomi Novak's was in there. One of the, the dragon stories was in there as well. I can't actually, off the top of my head, remember the, the, the title. But my my money went down on Michael F. Flynn. And like I say, 
I thought that was. Now listen to that in audio, and it was a great audio narration as well. But pipped at the post by Vernor Vinge, and Kieran got that right. And like I said, I remember doing that. And it was, we took, you know, it was a few months we kind of covered these books. And I'm thinking for this year as well with the Hugos, you know, I mean, we're all kind of Hugo, Hugo crazy at the minute. It might be nice to do something with the Hugos, you know, I mean, the intention is when they're on, you know, what I mean, is to have some more live coverage like we did last year on the sofa note show you know have some people like walking around on the shop floor i know grant's you know because it, it, it's in australia this year i know grant's going over there so what i would love to do is when they're in the room picking out the nominees have grant on the phone do you know what i mean and i'll kind of just l- put it up as quick as possible online but anyway back to michael flynn wikipedia says of michael f flynn nearly all of flynn's work falls under the category of hard science fiction although his treatment of it is unusual since he has applied the rigor of hard science fiction to softer sciences such as psychology in the work such as the country of the blind much of his short fiction has appeared in analog science fiction and fact like i say his novel elfenheim was nominated for a hugo award for best novel his novelette, Dawn and Sunset and the Colours of Earth, was nominated for a Hugo for Best Novelette in 2007. In 1988, Flynn's novella The Forest of Time was also nominated for a Hugo Award. And in 1995, his story Melodies of the Heart was also nominated in the same category. And this story about it here has also received a nomination for a Hugo Award. Michael Flynn was also the first author winner of the Robert A. Heinlein Medal, a Lifetime Achievement Award given by the Heinlein Society. You know, this guy is a very, very clever writer, and like I say, one who I'm proud to have on the show. It is narrated by Mike Boris, and again, this is a great narration. I'm just so lucky with, you know, when people get in touch with us, and, you know, they are bringing some an amazing talents, you know, for everyone to kind of share. And like I say, Mike Boris has got a fantastic narration voice. I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. Go over to Mike Boris Audio as well, and you can kind of see his work over there. Please do that. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is so proud to present. The Clapping Hands of God by Michael F. Flynn To a world unnamed by humans... Humans came. The gates swung open on a pleasant mountain glade, where the weather could be cool without being cold, and which lay cupped in a high valley below the tree-line and far from the grey smudges of the cities on the plains below. This isolation was by happy chance and not by wise choice. Gates swung where God willed, and man could but submit. Once one had opened in the midst of a grim fortress, full of armed and hostile things— and what befell the team that crossed, no man knows, for the gatekeeper sealed it forever. Here the humans erected a fine pavilion of gay cloth among mighty growths that might be called trees, and colorful splays that might be called flowers, although they were neither trees nor flowers exactly. The motley of the fabric clashed with the surrounding vegetation. The colors were off. They aped the complexion of a different world and seemed here a little out of place but that was acceptable. The humans were themselves a little out of place, and a bit of the familiar ought to surround them in the midst of all this strangeness. They decked the pavilion with bright cushions and divans and roped up the sides so the gentle and persistent eastern breeze could pass through. They stoked their larder with melons and dates and other toothsome delights and laid out their carpets for prayer. Though no one knew which direction served, the stars, when the night sky came, provided no clue. 
the gate itself would do for Mirab. The humans spent a night and day acclimating themselves to the strange sun and testing the air and the water and the eccentric plants and such of the motels as they could snare. They named these creatures after those they knew, rabbit, goat, swallow, cedar, and some of the names were fair. They stretched their twenty-four hours like taffy to fill up a slightly longer day. By the second nightfall they had shed their environmental suits and felt the wind and sun on their skin and in their hair. It was good to breathe the world's largesse, and many an outlandish aroma teased them. Exploring their valley, they found a great falls and spent another night and day at its foot, spellbound. A stream poured into the valley from high above, where the snows always fell and the snows always melted. It tumbled from the sky with a roar like the voice of God, throwing up a mist from which they named the mountain and within which a kaleidoscope of rainbows played. Its ageless assault had worn a pool unknowably deep in the rock below. Where and how the waters drained from the pool, God withheld. There was not another like it in all the known worlds. Afterwards, they clustered in their pavilion and reviewed their plans and inspected their equipment, and assembled those items that required assembly. Then they told one of their number to ward the gate they had passed through and settle themselves to study the strange folk on the wide plains below. Hassan Makluf was their leader, a man who had walked on seventeen worlds and bore in consequence seventeen wounds. To ten of those worlds he had followed another. To seven others had followed him. From four he had escaped with his life. With two he had fallen in love. He came to the lip of the little bowl valley and from a gendarme of rock studied the plains through a pair of enhanced binoculars. Which are you? he asked the planet spread below him. Assassin or lover? The answer, like the waters of the pool, remained hidden. This is a fine place, Bashir al Jamal declared beside him, as broadly approving as if he himself had fashioned the glade. Bashir was Hassan's cousin, and this was his first outing. A young man, freshly graduated from the House of Gates, he bubbled with innocence and enthusiasm. Hassan had promised their grandfather that Bashir would come back. With a scar, the old man had said severely. The trek is not worth the going if one bears no scars back. But then grandfather was Bedu, and such folks had hard ways. The water is pure, the air clean, Bashir continued. Never have I camped in a more beautiful place. Hassan continued to scan the lowlands. I have seen men killed by beautiful things. But the biochemistry here must be so different, none of the beasts would find us tasty. Hassan lowered his binoculars and looked at his cousin. Before or after they have taken a bite. Ah, Bashir bowed to the older man's advice. You are the fountain of wisdom. I live still, Hassan told him, raising the binoculars again. Call that wisdom, if you wish. At least we may study this world unseen, Bashir said. Deprived of one good fortune, he would seize another. There is no evidence that the locals have ever been up here. Perhaps it is one of their holy places, Hassan suggested, and we have violated it. God has granted to each folk one place that is holy above all others. Bashir was not impressed. If he has, this well may be it. But I think it is too remote. Hassan grunted and lowered the binoculars. I'm with a guard posted here and a sentry array, so that nothing may approach from this direction.
up a sheer cliff face? Perhaps the worldlings have climbing pads on their hands and feet. Perhaps they have wings. Perhaps they have nothing more than cleverness and perseverance. He capped his binoculars and returned them to their case. I would fear that last more than all the others. This is how they came to be there, in that enchanted glade upon the misty mountain. Behind this world lies a shadow world. It is called the Other Brain. And it lies not so very far away, save that it is in the wrong direction. It is behind us, beneath us, within us. It is as close as two hands clapping, and as far. Once before they clapped, this brain and the next, and from the echoes and the ripples of that big clap came matter and energy and galaxies and stars and planets and flowers and laughing children. Should they clap again, that will end it all. And many wise men fret their lives on the question of whether the two be approaching or no. But to know this, they must learn to measure the wrong direction. And that is a hard thing to do. Hassan thinks of the two brains as the hands of God. For this would make literal one of the hidden recitations of the prophet, peace be upon him. But he sees no reason to worry over whether they are to clap or not, since all will be as God wills. What, after all, could be done? To where would one run? The mountains are as fleeting as the clouds. So reads the fiqh of the Ashari Akida, and the other schools have assented with greater or lesser joy. What can be done is to travel through the other brain. That skill men have learned. The other brain is spanned like ours by three space-like dimensions and one time-like dimension. But it contains no planets, no vast spaces, only an endless undulating plain, cut through by featureless chasms and buttes. Or maybe it is nothing of the sort, and the landscape is only an illusion that the mind has imposed on a vista incomprehensible to human senses. Crossing the other brain is a hard road, for the journey from gate beacon to gate beacon must be swift and without hesitation. There is an asymmetry, a breaking of parity, hidden somewhere in the depths of that time which was before time itself. To linger is to perish. Some materials, some energy fields last longer, but in the end they are alien things in an alien land, and the land will have them. What man would endure such peril? Were not the prize the whole great universe itself? For the metric of space lies smaller on the other brain, and a few strides there leap light years here at home. How many light years no man knew? Hassan explained that to Bashir on the second night when, studying the alien sky, his cousin asked which star was the Earth's, for no answer was likely. Was this planet even in a galaxy known from Earth? How many light years had their lumbering other buses oversprung, and in which direction? And even if Earth's sun lay in this planet's sky, it would not be the sun they knew. Light speed does not bind the universe, but it binds man's knowing of it. For in a particular way, place is time, and all man's wisdom and knowing is but a circle of candlelight in an ever-spreading dark. No one may see farther or faster than the light by which one sees. Hence, one perceives only a time-bound sphere within a quasar halo. Now they had stepped into the sphere of another campfire, somewhere else in the endless desert of night. The stars we see from Earth, Hassan explained, are the stars as they were when their light departed. And the deeper into the sky we peer, the deeper into the past we see. Here we see the stars from a different place, 
and therefore a different time. I don't understand, Bashir said. He had been taught the facts, and he had learned them well enough for the examinations, but he did not yet know them. Imagine a star that is one million light years from the earth, Hassan said, and imagine that this world we are on lies halfway between the two. On earth, they see the star as it was a million years ago. Here, we see it as it was a mere five hundred thousand years ago, as we might see a grown man after having once glimpsed the child. In the meantime, the star will have moved. Perhaps it will have changed color or luminosity. So we do not now see the same star, nor do we see it in the same place. Ah, cousin, each time we emerge from our gateheads, we find not only a different world, but a different universe. Bashir shivered, although that may have been only the evening breeze. It's as if we are cut off and alone. I don't like it. Hassan smiled to himself. No one asks that you do. He turned toward the pavilion, where the others buzzed with conversation. But Bashir lingered a moment longer, with face upturned to the sky. I feel so alone, he said softly, but not so softly that Hassan failed to hear. They studied the world in every way they could, the physics, the chemistry, and biology, the society, and technology. The presence of sentience, and sentience of considerable attainment, complicated the matter, for they must understand the folk first as they were, and not as they would become. And that meant to see without being seen, for the act of knowing changes forever both knower and known. But to study even a small world was no small thing. A single flower is unfathomable. They sought the meets and bounds of the planet. What was its size, its density? Where upon its face had the gates sprung open? How far did it lie from its star? Sung marked the risings and the settings of the sun, and moon and stars, and groped toward answers. They sampled the flora and fauna in their mountain valley, scanned their viscera, and looked into the very architecture of their cells. Mazir discovered molecules that were like DNA, but not quite. They imagined phyla and classes upon the creatures, but did not dare guess at anything more precise. Ladawan and Yance launched small, stealthy birds, ultralight and sun-powered, to watch and listen where men themselves could not. On their bellies these drones displayed a vision of the sky above, captured by micro-cameras on their backs, in that way achieving an operational sort of invisibility and allowing the telepilots to hover and record unseen. No radio, Sung complained, and Hassan laughed a little at that, for always Sung preferred the easy way. We will have to plant bugs, Hassan told the team when they met after the first flight for debriefing, to study their tongues, for we cannot hear them otherwise. They don't have tongues, Mazir said, though with him it was less complaint than fascination. They make sounds and they communicate with these sounds, but I don't know how they make them. See if you can locate a body, Hassan told the telepilots. Perhaps there are morgues in the city. Pointing to the dark, smoky buildings that nestled distant against the bay of a cold blue ocean, Mazir needs to know how these people are put together. Tissue samples would be nice, Mazir added, but he knew that was a lanyap. An elementary school might have simple displays of their written language, Bashir suggested. It was a standard checklist item for the assay of inhabited worlds, studied and carefully memorized in his training, but Hassan was pleased that the boy had remembered it. 
coal smoke. Klaus Altenbach announced the next day after a drone had lasered the emissions of a building they believed to be a factory. Or something carbonaceous. Peat? Not petroleum. Those bunkers are filled with something solid-filled. Technology is mid-19th-century equivalent, he said, adding after a moment, by the common era. I expect soon the steamships to come to those docks. When Ladawan asked him from where the ships would come, he shrugged and told her, There cannot be a horizon to no good purpose. It is a strange-looking city, Mizir said, although I cannot say why. Yance Darby scratched his head. Don't look all that strange to me, except for the folk in it. They really are graceful, Iman said of the indigents. Once you grow accustomed to their strangeness, they are curlicues, filigrees of being. They must have art of some sort. Their buildings are intaglio, plain boxes, towers, but they have incised their every surface. Look for painting, look for sculpture. And she set about to build a mannequin of the folk. There's so much to learn, cried Bashir, overwhelmed by it all. Being young, he was easily overwhelmed. But a world is not something to be nibbled at. If one is to taste it all, it must be swallowed whole, and yet that is impossible. As well to sip the Nile, Mazir grumbled. We could spend the rest of our lives here and not learn the first thing. Oh, we'd learn the first thing, Hassan said. What worried him and kept him awake into the night was not the first thing they might learn, but the last. And so it went. The drones flew, digital photographs downloaded into a mosaic map of landforms and soil types and vegetation. Soon longed for a satellite in low orbit. They sprinkled small ears about the city one night and harvested from them a babble of sounds for the intelligence to sort into phonemes and other patterns. The intelligence concluded that two languages were in use and set itself to ponder the matter. Mazir had for the time to content himself with creatures he could collect nearby. Alpine species, he grumbled. How representative are they of the coastal plains, the estuaries? Klaus discovered a railroad coming into the city on the far side. They had somehow to bring that coal in, he joked, and muleback I thought unlikely. The engines were steam-powered, with spherical boilers. Bashir wanted to name the world. Long-timers like Hassan and Sung and Mizir seldom bothered with such things. In time the planet would speak and its name would be revealed. Until then Hassan would simply call it the world. Still, when the team debriefed on the seventh day and Bashir broached the issue, Hassan did not stop the others from discussing it. They lounged on the cushions and ate dates and cheeses. Jan Starby, like Bashir, recently graduated from the House of Gates, tossed pieces of food at the curious animals, causing them to scamper away, until Imam scolded him for it. That the crumbs were indigestible would not stop animals from swallowing. And who knew what would come of that? Soong sat a little apart on high furniture at a table spread with print-out maps, while he and Klaus and Ladawan traced geography and the road network on maps made of light. A phantom sphere floated in the air above the projector, all black, all unknown, save the little spot where they encamped, and they were not yet certain they had placed it properly. Hassan stood apart outside the pavilion, under stars strange and distant, he held a cup of nectar in his hands and studied the MRI holograms of the local fauna that had been arranged on a display board, and he traced with a fingertip the clayed lines that Mazir had guessed at. 
How strange, he thought, and yet how familiar, too. God was a potter, and nature was his knife. Everywhere life took form, he shaped it toward the same ends. And so there were things like mice, and things like hawks, and although they were quite different in their details. The mouse had six legs, for one thing, its gait absorbing thereby many hours of Mazir's close attention. And the hawk had claws on wingtip and feet, and concealed, too, beneath its covert. Iman had constructed a mannequin of the sapience and placed it by the entrance to the pavilion. Man or woman, no one knew, or even if such categories had meaning here. It stood shorter than a human, and at rest assumed a curious sinusoid posture, like a cobra risen. In form bilaterally symmetrical, but possessed of forearms and two legs. Large lifting arms grew from mid-torso, smaller manipulators farther up. Claws tipped the one set, tentacles the other. The feet ended in claws, too, though these were stubbier. Mazir thought that the ancestral form had been six-legged, too, like so many of the scuttling things in the meadow, and the clawed lifting arms had evolved from the mid-legs. "'They are rodents,' he had said, arranging their image under that clade. "'Or what things like rodents might become.' "'Yet the rodents here are territorial,' Imam had told them, "'which is very unrodent-like.' Everything is the same the universe over, Monsieur had answered philosophically, except that everything is different, too. Atop the torso sat a structure shaped like an American football positioned for kickoff. The skin was smooth, without hair or feathers, but with small plates, as if the creature had been tiled by a master mason. The creature's coloring was a high cerulean, like the clear sky over the desert, though with darker patches on its back. But Mazir had spotted others in the throngs of the city, taller, slimmer, tending toward cobalt, which he thought might hail from the world's tropics. It was a rich world, diverse. There were many races, many tongues. There were alpine meadows and high prairies and coastal estuaries. How many eons deep was it? What lay over the curve of the horizon? How could they hope to grasp more than a meager slice? They would never know its history. They could hardly know its culture. Was that city below them, blackened with soot, lively with activity, the pinnacle of this world's civilization? Or was it a cultural and technological backwater? Later they would send the drones out on longer recon flights, but even that would only scratch the surface. Men will come here for years, Hassan thought, perhaps for generations, and maybe then we will know a little. The creature in the model had no face. There were filaments that Mazir thought scent receptors. There were gelatin pools that were like eyes. There was a cavity into which they had watched indigens spoon food. But none of these features were arranged into a face. Indeed, its mouth was in its torso. The filaments waved above the football like ferns. The gelatin-filled pits were distributed asymmetrically around the headball, as were other pits, apparently empty, and a large parabolic cavity perversely set where the human mouth would be although it was not a mouth at all. "'They're really beautiful,' Iman said. She had come to stand by Hassan while the others chattered on about possible names for the planet. Hassan nodded, though in acknowledgment rather than agreement. He thought the indigens looked scarred, pockmarked, twisted out of true. But that was because his mind sought a greater symmetry of features than was offered. "'Beautiful, perhaps, though they differ somewhat from the life-forms Mazir has found up here,' he said. I think they are interlopers, 
I think they have come from somewhere else, these people of yours. Perhaps from across that ocean. Perhaps, she allowed the possibility. Soong says that the entire coastal plain came from somewhere else, and its collision with this continent raised the misty mountains. I keep seeing a face, he said to her. I know there isn't one, but my brain insists on nostrils and ears. It seems to be smiling at me. Recognition template, Iman said. People have seen Isa, praise be upon him, in a potato, or Shaitan in the billow of smoke. It bothers me. We need to see these people the way they are, not the way we think they are. It was easier on Concanon's world, she told him. The indigens there looked like flowers. Did they? A little. They flew. Ah. Vapors jetted out of their stem. They could only travel in short hops. But one doesn't look for faces in a flower. And here I have always mistaken you for a lily. Iman turned from him and made a show of watching the debate of the others. Will you call this place Makluf's world? As team leader, it is your privilege. Hassan shook his head. I met Concanon once. He had an ego big enough for a world. But I'm not so vain as he. What do you think we should call this place? Iman pursed her lips and adjusted the hijab under her chin. Her face was only a pale circle wrapped in a checkered cloth of red and white squares after the fashion of the Jordan Valley. We should learn what the indigens call it in their own tongue. Hassan laughed. They will call it the world, and likely in hundreds of tongues, most of which we will never hear. Shangri-La, said Bashir, loud enough that Hassan heard it and turned toward him. Yance clapped his hands. Perfect, he agreed. This place is sure enough a paradise. Klaus nodded slowly, as did Ladawan and Khalid, the gate warden. Soong said nothing and glanced at Hassan. No, Hassan stepped inside the pavilion. That is a dangerous name for a world, and dangerous because it sounds so safe. Every time we speak of it, we would think this place safer yet. Well, isn't it? asked Iman. Hassan looked back over his shoulder and saw her run a hand along the muscled lifting arm of her statue. I don't know, he said. I haven't seen the surprise yet. Surprise? asked Bashir. What surprise is that? Sung chuckled, but Hassan didn't bother to answer. He continued to watch Iman stroke the statue. Well, what would you call it? Yance asked, making it sound a challenge. It is your privilege, Hassan, said Mazir. If you must have a name for this world, and Hassan looked again outside the tent, at the strange constellations above, and the expressionless, immobile face on the statue. If you must have a name for this world, call it Al-Batan. Mazir stiffened. Bashir and Khalid exchanged glances. Iman smiled faintly. It means the hidden, she whispered to the others. Not exactly, Hassan added. It is one of the names of God, Mazir protested. That isn't proper for a planet. It is fit, Hassan said, for as long as God hides its nature from us. After that, after that we will see. They called the city East Haven because of its position on a broad and steep estuary. A channel led from the eastern sea well into the mouth of a swift river to embrace piers, docks, warehouses. This much they learned from high-altitude sonar pictures from their drones. Why no ships nestled in those docks, the drones could not say.
South and west of the city lay flatlands thick with greening crops, by which they guessed at a season much like late spring. The crops were broad and flat, like clover, but whether intended for the Batonites or for their livestock was unclear. Harrows and cultivators were drawn by teams of six legged creatures, the claws of whose mid and hind legs had nearly vanished into a hoof like structure. Its forelegs stubbornly divided the hoof. Inevitably, the team named them horses, although something in their demeanor suggested oxen as well. One field was more manicured, covered by a fine, ground hugging carpet of waxy, flat leafed, yellow green plants, broken here and there with colorful flowers and shrubs arranged in decorative patterns. A sample of the grass, when crushed, gave forth a pleasant odor, somewhat like frankincense. The park, for which they assumed it was, spread across the top of a swell of ground, and from it gained a fine vista of the city, its port, and the eastern sea beyond. As the weather grew warmer, groups of Batonites ventured forth from the city to spend afternoons or sunsets there, spooning baskets of food into their gaping stomachs, or watching their younglings leap in somersault through the chartreuse oil grass. A road they called the Grand Trunk Road ran southwest from the city. The portions nearest the city had been paved with broad, flat stones, across which rattled a motley array of vehicles. Carriages assembling landaus or hansoms, open wagons that Yans called buckboards, and freight wagons heavy with goods and strapped with canvas covers, whose drivers goaded their team of oxen six horses with enormously long whips. The Batonites themselves dressed in garb that ranged from pale dun to rainbow plumage, as task or mood dictated. They had a taste for beauty, Iman told the others, though for a different sort of beauty than Earth then knew, and she spent some of her free time adapting local fashion to the limbs and stature of humans, for there was a fad for matters alien in the cities of the Earth. One fork of the Grand Trunk Road branched northwestward toward a pass in the coastal range of which the Misty Mountains was a part. The road simplified itself as it receded, like a countryman shedding its urban clothes piecemeal as he fled the city. It became first hard-driven gravel, then earth damped with a waxy oil. Finally, as it began the long switchback up to the pass, rutted dirt. The drone they sent through the pass returned with images of a second, more distant city, smaller than East Haven and nestled in a rich farming valley. Beyond, at the limits of resolution, lay drier and more barren country and the hint of something approaching desert. There is something energetic about those people. Hassan observed. They have a commotion to them, a busyness that is very like Americans. They are forever doing something. That is why the city seems so odd, Iman exclaimed, a cry so triumphant that, following as it did so many weeks of study, seemed tardy in its proclamation, as if the sociologist had been paying scant attention till now. Don't you see, she told them, they are Americans. Look at the streets, how linear they are, how planned. Only by the docks do they twist and wander. The city did not grow here. It was planted. Yes, Mazir, you were right. They came from across the eastern sea. A lively people indeed. One of a pair of younglings capering in the park caromed off a six cedar tree and lay stunned while its parents rushed to comfort it. Three parents, Iman noted, and wondered about their roles. Or is the third only an uncle or aunt or older sibling? Yet the posture of consolation is much the same on one world as another, and tentacles could stroke most wondrous delicate. They care for one another, Iman told Hassan that evening in the pavilion. Who does not? 
he answered, rising from the divan and walking into the night toward the vantage point from which they watched the city. East Haven was a dull orange glow. Oil from the chartreuse grass burned slowly in a hundred thousand lamps. Iman joined him and opened her mouth to speak, but Hassan silenced her with a touch to the arm and pointed to the shadow form of Bashir, who sat cross-legged on a great pillow and watched with night-vision binoculars. Silently they withdrew into Hassan's pavilion, where Hassan sat on an ottoman, while Iman, standing behind him, kneaded his shoulder muscles. "'You've been carrying something heavy on these,' she said. "'They are so hard and knotted up.' "'Oh, nothing much. A world.' "'Listen to Atlas,' she squeezed hard, and Hassan winced. "'Nothing you can do will affect this world. All you do is watch.' People will come here for the wonderfall, for the oil-grass perfume, for the fashion and cut of their clothing. In the end, that cannot go unnoticed. What of it? To our benefit and theirs. One day we will greet them, trade with them, listen to their music, and they to ours. It is only the when and the how that matter. I think you carry a weight much less than a world. All right, the eight of you. That is heavy enough. What? Are Sung and Mazir children that you must change their diapers, or I? That conjured disturbing thoughts. He reached back over his shoulder and stilled her ministrations. Perhaps you had better stop now. Am I so heavy, then? It's not that. You scare me. I don't know who you are. I am as plain as typeset. Children read me for a primer. That is not what I meant. Do you wonder what is beneath the hijab? I could take it off. The fire ran through him like a molten sword. He turned on his pillow, and Amman took an abrupt step back, clasping her hands before her. We've never been teamed before, you and I, he told her. What do you know about me? I know that Bashir is not so heavy as you think. Hassan was silent for a while. He grows no lighter for all your assurances. What can happen to him here? Very little, I think, he admitted reluctantly, and that is dangerous, for his next world may not be so safe. I think he likes the Batnites. They are easy folk to like. There are more such folk than you might think. I think you are bald, beneath the hijab, I mean. Bald, and maybe with ears like conch shells. Oh, you are a master of flattery. You and I may never team again. You will go through a gate, and I will go through another— and maybe one of us will not come back. I am no Shia. I do not practice muta'a. Iman's face set in unreadable lines. Is that what you think? A marriage with an expiration date? That perhaps you do not know me after all. She went to the flap of his pavilion and paused a moment slightly bent over before passing out. It's black, she said, turning a bit to cast the words back. Black and very long, and my mother compared it to silk. As for the ears, that price is higher than you've paid so far. With that she was gone. Hassan thought they had quarreled. I have seniority, he told himself. She will join Sung and Mazir and me when we next go out. He could arrange that. There were people in the House of Gates who owed him favors. The next day Hassan sent Bashir back to earth for supplies, and because he was so young, sent Mazir to accompany him, and Khalid to drive the other bus. They took discs full of information and cases of specimens for the scholars to study. Check calibration on a clock, Sung reminded them as they buttoned down. Time will run differently in other brain.
Thank you, O grandfather, said Khalid, who had driven many such runs before. I did not know that. Insolence, soon complained to Hassan afterward. Reminder never hurt. Makes me nervous having only one buggy left, Yant said. You know what I mean? We can't get all of us and all our gear into one, if we have to bug out in a hurry. Bug out? Soon thought the word related to buggy. You never know, Yant said, feigning wisdom by saying nothing, so that Soon was no more enlightened. That evening Klaus came to Hassan with a puzzle. These are for today the surveillance flights over six-foot city. Don't call the natives six-foots. What's on the video? I hope that you will tell me. Klaus was usually more forthcoming. He had the German attitude toward facts. He ate them raw, without seasoning, and served them up the same way. There was something brutal about this, for facts could be hard and possess sharp edges, making them hard to swallow. Better to soften them a little first by chewing them over. Klaus's video had been shot at night and had the peculiar greenish luminescence of night vision. The timestamp in the lower right named the local equivalent of three in the morning. The drone had been conducting a biosurvey over the tidal flats north of the city. Mazir had spotted some peculiar burrowing creatures there on an earlier flyover. And during the return flight, motion in the city below had activated the drone's sensors. It is most peculiar, Klaus said. Most peculiar. How peculiar, Hassan did not know. Perhaps it was customary for large groups of the Batonites to wake from their sleep and come outdoors in the small hours of the morning, although they had never done so before. Yet here they were in their multitudes, on balconies, on rooftops, at their windowsills, in small knots gathered before the doorways of their buildings, all turned skyward with a patient stillness that Hassan could only call expectation. The drone had lingered in circles, its small intelligence sensing an anomaly of some sort in the sudden mass behavior. And then, first one worldling, then another, pointed skyward, and they began to behave in an agitated manner, turning and touching and waving their tentacled upper arms. Have they seen the drone? Hassan asked. It was hard to imagine, stealth as it was, and at night in the bargain. Perhaps they sense the engine's heat signature. Mazir had floated the hypothesis that some of the gelatin pits on the headball were sensitive to infrared. No, said Klaus. Observe the direction in which they stare. It is to the east, and not directly above. How do you know which way they stare when they have no faces? In truth, it was difficult to judge in the unearthly light of night vision. Everything was just a little soft at the edges, and features did not stand out. Look how they hold their bodies. I assume that their vision is in the direction in which they walk. It makes reason, not so? Reason, said Hassan. I wonder what reason brought them all out in the middle of the night. Something in the sky. Ask Sung. Such a mystery will please him. Hassan made a note to talk to Sung. But as he turned away, something in the panning video caught his eye. And that something was this. When all men fall prostrate in prayer, the one who kneels upright stands out like bas-relief. When all men run, the one remaining still is noted. And when all men look off to the east, the one with face upturned seemed to be staring directly at Hassan himself. Which was to say, directly at the drone. This one, said Hassan, striking the freeze frame. What do you make of him? So, I had not noticed him before. Klaus peered more closely at the screen. A heretic, perhaps. But his chuckle stuck in his throat. I meant no offense. Hassan, much puzzled, took none. Only later would Mazir remind him that to a European, Mecca lies proverbially east. Planet, 
Sung announced with grave satisfaction after evening had fallen. Most systems, many planets. This rising significant to six legs. Don't call them six legs. Why would it have special significance? Sung made a gesture signifying patient ignorance. Perhaps a beginning of festival. Ramadan, a fashing, a carnival. Ramadan is not a festival. So hard keep Western notions straight, Sung answered. Asan was never certain when Sung was being droll. His brightest object now in sky, the geophysicist continued, save in a moon. Maybe next planet starward, blue tint, so maybe water there. Maybe second living world in system. The next day, the worldlings went about their city bearing arms. There had been little sign of a military hitherto, but now Havenites drilled and marched on the parkland south of the city. They ran, they jumped, they practiced ramming shot down the long barrels of their weapons. They marched in rank and file and executed intricate ballets to the rhythmic clapping of their lower arms. Formations evolved from marching column to line of battle and back again. The floral arrangements that had checkerboarded the park were soon trampled and their colors stamped into a universal sepia. It bothered Hassan when behavior suddenly changed. It meant that the team had missed something basic. Why? he asked, watching through the binoculars, expecting no answer. But he received one of sorts that evening. When the blue planet rose, some of the worldlings fired their weapons in its direction and raised a staccato tattoo that rose and fell and rippled across the city like the chop of a bothered sea. Fools! muttered Sung, but Hassan recognized defiance when he saw it. Of planet? the Chinese scoffed. Of omen? Iman was saddened by the guns. I had hoped them beyond such matters. What people, Hassan said, have ever been beyond such matters? Klaus grunted. It will be like Bismarck's wars, I think. No radio, but they must have telegraphy. No airplanes, but a balloon would not surprise me. Iman turned on him. How can you talk of war with such detachment? But Klaus only shrugged. What other way is there? he asked. All we can do is watch. Ladawan and Yance and the others said nothing. The day after that, the second other bus returned with fresh supplies and equipment. Mizir offloaded a wealth of reagents, a sounding laser, and a scanning electron microscope. It's only a field model, he said of the microscope, but at last I can see. Sung regarded the aerosons and high-altitude balloons and judged them passable. View from height may be informative, he conceded. Then he turned to Mazir and grinned. So I, too, look at very small things. A team of mechanics had come back with Bashir and Khalid, and they set about assembling the ultralight under Yance's impatient eyes. They wanted to know if you'll let the other teams through yet, Bashir told Hassan. No. But I told them... It was not for you to tell them anything, Hassan shouted, which caused Hez to turn and Bashir to flinch. Hassan immediately regretted the outburst, but remained stern. Something has developed in the city, he said brusquely, and explained about the rising of the blue planet, Al-Azraq, and the sudden martial activity. The new star marks their season for jihad, Bashir guessed. Who ever had such seasons, Hassan scolded him. It is the struggle with our own heart that is the true jihad. Maybe so, said Yance, who had overheard. But when folks are in a mood for a ruckus, any reason will do. He studied the ultralight thoughtfully. I just hope they don't have any aircraft guns. Iman learned to recognize Batonites. They only look alike, she said, because they are so strange, and the common strangeness overwhelms the individual differences. Yes, 
said Tsung. Like Arab curlicues, all letters look same. The Batonites do have faces, exactly, Iman reminded them, but the features on their headball are not random. They are always the same number of pits and ferns, and they always appear in the same approximate locations. No surprise there, said Mazir. How many humans are born with three eyes, or with noses where their ears should be? But the sizes of these features, and the distance between them, vary just as they do among humans. How else do we recognize one another? But by the length of the nose, the distance between the eyes, the width of the mouth. Some mouths, Yance whispered to Bashir, being wider than others. I have identified seventy-three eigenface dimensions for the batonite headball. The diameters of the pits, reflectivity of the gelatin in them, the length of the fronds and the number and the size of their leaves, the hue of the skin plates. You don't have to name them all, Hassan said. And so on. All too strange to register on our own perception, but the intelligence can measure an image and identify specific individuals. Are there systematic differences between the two races? Mazir asked. I think you will find the Cobaltics have more and broader leaves than the Ceruleans. Why, so they have, on the dorsal fronds. Mazir nodded in slow satisfaction. I believe those function as heat radiators, though I cannot be certain until I explore their anatomies. If the Cobaltics are a tropical folk, they may need to spill their heat more rapidly. None of the mountain species here in our valley have those particular fronds, or any related feature. At this altitude, spilling excess heat is not a great problem. More evidence, Bashir suggested, that the Havanites have come from somewhere else. The intelligence had been teasing threads of meaning from the great ball of yarn that was the Batonites' spoken tongues. The task was complicated by the presence of two such tongues, which the intelligence declared to be unrelated at the fifth degree, and by the inferred presence of scores of specialized jargon and argo. The folk at the docks... Klaus pointed out, must have their own language, and the thieves that we sometimes hear whisper in the night. They don't whisper, Imam told him. They hum and pop and click. Those pits on the headball, Mizir mused, are drums, wonderfully adapted. They no more evolved for speaking than did human lips and tongue. They were recruited, and yet they serve. If they cannot speak from both sides of their mouth, Klaus observed, they may sometimes say two things at once. "'the advantage of having more than one orifice adapted to making sounds. "'Klaus made a further comment and laughed, "'but because he made it in German, no one else got the joke, "'although it concerned making sounds from more than one orifice. "'They input the murmuring of the crowd from the night when Al-Azraq first appeared, "'and the intelligence responded with, "'Murmuring, and the occasional cry of, "'The blue planet! It rises! Appears!' "'and expression of possible dismay and or fear.' It was not a translation, but it would progress toward a translation. There may have been another language, a third one, which made no use of sounds, for at times they observed two batonites together, silent, but in evident communication. It's the fern-like structures, said Mazir. They are scent receptors, at close range, that communicate by odors. Inefficient, scoffed Klaus. Inefficiency is a sign of natural selection, Mazir assured him. "'and some messages may be very simple. "'Run, come.' "'It's not the sense,' said Iman, "'or not the sense alone. "'Observe how they touch, "'how they stroke one another's fronds. "'They communicate by touching one another.' "'She challenged the others with an upthrust chin, "'and no one dared gainsay her, "'for she herself often communicated by touch. "'What else is a handshake, "'a clap on the shoulder,' she insisted, "'or a kiss?' 
they decided that the frond stroking amounted to kissing. Some was done perfunctorily. Like a peck on the cheek, Yance said. Some was done with great show. Some indeed with lingering stillness. Whatever it meant, the Havanites did it a lot. They're an affectionate people, Bashir said. Iman said nothing, but tousled the young man's hair. Bashir had telepiloting duty the night when a drone followed a soldier out into the park. This soldier wore an ill-fitting uniform of pale yellow on his high cerulean form, one unmarked by any of the signifiers of rank or status that the intelligence had deduced. It rode a six-legged horse past neglected fields and up the gravel road that led to the once-manicured hilltop. It rode unarmed. When it reached the level ground where the haven folk had sported at games before taking up more deadly rehearsals, the soldier dismounted and spoke soft drumbeats, as of a distant and muffled darbuka. Other drumbeats answered, and a second batonite, a tall, slim cobaltic, emerged from the grove of six-cedar and poplar. The two approached and stood together for a while, intertwining their tentacled upper arms. Then the second spoke in two voices. One voice said, Show, demonstrate, make apparent. To me, this one. You, present one, agency, immediate time. And the other said, Fear, dread, flight or fight. I, this one, agency, now and from now. At least so the intelligence thought it said. Yet what manner of ears must they have, Bashir marveled, to parse a duet. The soldier answered in like harmony, appears, shows, it, that one agency, not yet, and this one, defiance, resolution, resignation, now and from now. The cobaltic had brought a basket and opened it to reveal covered dishes of the puree of grains and legumes that the Batonites favored on their picnic outings, and which the earthlings called Baton Hummus. Eat, take in, this item thing, you, present one, agency, immediate time. And cook, prepare, I, this one, agency, pastime. The soldier had brought food as well, a thick yellow-green liquid in pear-shaped bottles, from which he pried the caps with a small instrument. The two removed their upper garments, a complex procedure in that four arms must withdraw from four sleeves, and exposed thereby the mouths in their torsos. "'I wonder if humans can eat those foods of theirs,' Iman said. She had come up behind Bashir and had been watching over his shoulder. "'A new exotic flavor to excite the jades.' Ever since Al-Nata, the appetite for such things had grown and grown. The rebirth, the rediscovery— Art, literature, song, science, everything old was new again, and the new was gulped down whole. I've distilled a fluid from the oil grass, Mazir told them. He sat at a high table drinking coffee with Ladawan and Klaus. But whether I have obtained a drink or fuel, I cannot say. Jans will not let me put it in the ultralight's gas tank, but he will not drink it for me, either. The others laughed, and Klaus indicated Mazir's small, exquisite mug, whose contents had been brewed in the Turkish fashion. "'My friend, how would you know the difference?' "'Coffee,' said Mazir in mock dignity, "'is more than hot water in which a few beans have passed an idle moment.' He took his cup and left the table to stand with Iman and Bashir. "'Hassan?' he asked her through lips poised to sip. Iman shook her head, and Mazir said, "'He is always cautious when encountering a new world.' He turned his attention to the screen, just as the soldier ran its tentacles across the fronds of the taller one's headball, and then— "'inserted those tentacles into its own mouth. "'What is this?' Mazir said, "'setting his cup on its saucer and bending closer. "'A new behavior,' Iman said, delighted, "'and pulled her data pad from her belt pouch. 
Bashir, what is the file number on the bird's download? I want to view this later. She entered the identifier the boy gave her, and with her stylus scratched quick curly cues across the touchscreen. Into the oral cavity, she mused. What does it mean? Bashir asked, and no one could tell him. Usually the Batnites fed themselves by gripping spoons or tines with an upper hand, most often with the left. Sometimes, though rarely, they held food directly using one of their middle hands, typically the right. Complimentary handedness, Mazir had called it. Yet the two Batonites on this double-mooned evening abandoned their spoons in their awkward middle hands, while their delicate and tentacled uppers entwined each other like restless snakes. Then the Cobaltic reached directly into the Cerulean's mouth orifice. The soldier grew very taut and still, and laid its bowl of Baton hummus slowly aside. With its own tentacles it stroked the other's scent receptors and touched briefly certain of the pits on the Cobaltic's headball. Mazir, entranced by the ritual, made careful note of which pits were touched on the sketch of the headball. Iman made notes as well, though with different purpose. Using its large middle hands, the soldier took the cobaltic by the torso and pushed gently until the other had disengaged and the two pulled away from each other. Look, what is that? Bashir asked. Inside the soldier's mouth. A tongue, perhaps? Mazir said. See how it glistens. Perhaps a mucus coating, a catalyst for digestion. A man looked at him at the moment. Do you think so? Then she turned her attention to the screen and watched with an awful intensity. She placed a hand on Bashir's shoulder and leaned a little on him. When the two Batonites brought their mouths together, her grip grew hard. Bashir said, Why, they're kissing! Mazir said doubtfully, We've seen no such kisses before among them, only a brief frond stroke. This is more serious than the frond stroke, I think, Iman said. It's a rather long kiss said Bashir. The mouth and tongue are the most sensitive organs of touch that humans possess, she told him, aside from one another. Hassan, drawn by the interest of the three clustered before the telescreen, had come up behind them. Now he said, turn that screen off, with particular firmness. It was at that moment that Bashir realized, they weren't kissing, they were, I mean, he blacked the screen and then turned to Iman. You knew. But Iman had turned round to face Hassan. You're right, she said. They deserve their privacy. Klaus and Ladawan had joined them. What is befallen? the technologist asked. Iman answered him without turning away from Hassan. There is a struggle coming, a jihad of some sort, and two who may never see each other again have stolen a precious night for their own. Klaus said, I don't understand. Ladawan told him, A lover is bidding her soldier boy goodbye. Mazir was doubtful. We don't know which one is he or she. They may be either, or neither, or it may be a seasonal thing. Among the fungi... Oh, to Gehenna with your fungi, said Iman, who then turned from the still silent Hassan and stalked over to her tent. Mazir watched, puzzled, then turned to Hassan and continued, I really must study the process. That tongue must have been a... Have the intelligence studied, or do it in private, Hassan ordered. Grant these people their dignity. Klaus tugged Mazir on the sleeve as the biologist was leaving. The soldier is probably the male. At this level of technology, no society can afford to sacrifice its females in combat. Oddly, it was Ladawan, who was usually very quiet, who had the last word. Sometimes, she said, I do not understand you people. She told Sung about it later, and soon spoke certain words in Mandarin, of which tongue Ladawan also knew a little. What he said was, Treasure that which you do not understand. Two things happened the next day. 
or maybe more than two. The first was quite dramatic, but not very important. The second was not so dramatic. Yans Darby brought forewarning. He had taken the ultralight out in the morning and had flown a wide circuit around the backside of the misty mountain to avoid being seen from East Haven. The ultralight was stealthed in the same manner as the drones, and its propeller was hushed by MEMS. But it was larger and hence more likely to be detected, so he needed a flight path that would gain him sufficient altitude before passing over habitations. Yance had followed a river across the great western valley to where it plunged through a purple gorge into the mountain range and so onto the coastal plain. There was a small town at the gorge and another a little farther downstream on the coastal side of the mountains. But the mouth of this river was a morass of swamps and bayous, and there was no city there as there was at East Haven. Yance reported, Cajuns in the Delta, but no one at the base camp understood what he meant at first, namely trappers and fishers living in small, isolated cabins. Two of them looked up when I flew past, he mentioned. That troubled Mazir. I think the indigens sense into the infrared. The waste heat of our engines is minimal, but. The team had occasionally noted locals glancing toward passing drones, much as a human might glance toward a half seen flicker of light. Hassan made a note to schedule fewer night flights when the contrast of the engine exhaust against the deep sky was greater. A large covered wagon accompanied by five horsemen set out from East Haven on the Grand Trunk Road, but the humans paid it no mind. There was often heavy traffic in that direction. Yance followed the line of mountains out to sea. Soon thought there might be islands in that direction, a seamount continuation of the mountain range, and Mazir lusted to study insular species to see how they might differ from those they had found on the coastal plain, the river valley on the western slope, and their own alpine meadow. To this end, Yance carried several drones slaved to the ultralight to act as outriders. What they found was a ship. You should see that son bitch, he told them over the radio link. It's like an old pirate ship, sails all a billow, gun ports down the sides, cutting through the water like a plow. Different shape hull, though, though I couldn't tell you just how. Wider, maybe, or shorter. And the sails, you know, the rigging, aren't the same either. There's a sunburst on the mainsail. Say, so don't use a sunburst emblem in the city, Klaus said. The six eagle seems to be the local totem. He meant the ferocious bird with claws on its wings and feet and covert. It's not a totem, Hassan said. It's an emblem. Didn't your people use an eagle once? Zadopoladla, Klaus nodded. But it was a totem, he added and we sacrificed a great many to it. Maybe it's an invasion force, Bashir said. Maybe this is why the Haven folk have been preparing for war. A single ship, said Hassan. A first ship, Bashir said, and Hassan acknowledged the possibility. I would hate to see these people attacked, Bashir continued. I like them. They're kind and they're clever and they're industrious. Hassan, who had bent over the vision feed from Yance's drone, straightened to look at him. Do you know of Philippe Habib? only what I was taught in school. He was clever and industrious, and they say that he was kind, at least to his friends, though he had not many of those. He was a great man. He was. But history has a surfeit of great men. We could do with fewer. The Légion étrangère was never supposed to enter France. But what I tried to tell you is that we do not know the reasons for this coming struggle. The clever and industrious folk we have been observing may be the innocent victims of a coming attack, or an oppressive power about to be overthrown. When the Safavid fought the Ak Colonio, which side had justice? Cousin, I don't even know who they are. Nor do you know these folk on the plains. 
Yes, conduct a search pattern. See if there is a flotilla or only this one vessel. But it was only the one vessel, and it furled its sails and entered East Haven under steam to a tumultuous but wary welcome. There was much parading and many displays, and the sailors and marines aboard the ship, who wore uniforms of crimson and gold decked with a different braid and signifiers, had their backs slapped and their fronds stroked by strangers in the city, and not a few had their orifices entertained in the evening that followed. Sailors, observed Klaus, are much the same everywhere. A ceremony was held in the park. Flags were exchanged, a ritual apparently of some moment, for the ruffles and paradiddles of drum-like chatter rose to a crescendo. Ugly and entire functional sabers were exchanged by the ship's captain and high-ranking haven soldier. I believe they are making peace, Iman said. These are two old foes who have come together. That is a seductive belief, Hassan said. We love it because it is our belief. How often in earth's past have ancient enemies clasped hands and stood shoulder to shoulder? I like the Havanites better than the sunburst folk, Bashir stated. Hassan turned to him. Have you chosen sides, then, at a peace ceremony? Remember, said Iman, that havens use the bird of prey as its sigil. A golden sun is entirely less threatening an emblem. It's not that. It's their uniforms. You prefer yellow to crimson? No. The havenite uniforms fit more poorly, and their insignia are less splendid. This is a folk who make no parade of fighting. Hassan, who had begun to turn away, looked back and looked at his young cousin with a new respect. You are right. They are no peacocks about war, as these fancy folk from over the sea. And that is well, for it is no peacock matter. But ask yourself this. Why do old enemies come together? Mizir chortled over the images he and Imam were collecting of the newcomers. Definite morphological differences. The fronds on their headballs show a different distribution of colors. They are more of the greenish sort than we have in the city. And the sunbursters are shorter on the average. Larawan told them that the intelligence had found close matches between the phonemes used by the sailors and those used by the city folk. They are distinct tongues, or perhaps I should say distinct drums, but of the same family. That which the Cobaltics here sometimes speak is quite different. After the ceremony in the park, there was a raucous celebration. Music was created by plucking and beating and bowing. They know the cymbal and the xylophone and the fiddle, said Iman but not the trumpet or the reed. One needs a mouth connected to a pair of lungs for that sort of thing, Mazir told her. But, oh, what four hands can do with a tunber? And indeed their stringed instruments were marvels of complexity, beside which tunber, guitar, sitar, violin were awkward and simple. Claw tips did for plectums, and tentacles fretted and even bowed most wondrously. There was dancing, too, though not as humans understood the dance. They gyrated in triplets, sunbursters and havenites together, clapping with their lifting arms while they did. Mazir could not tell if the triplets were single or mixed gender. You have to reach into the thorax opening and call forth the organ, he said. Otherwise, who can tell? Not I, a man answered. I wonder if they can. A people whose gender is known only through discovery will have interesting depths. She glanced first at Hassan, then at Mazir, who winked. The sound of the clapping in the parkland evolved from a raindrop randomness to marching cadence and back again, providing a peculiar ground to the intricate, contrapuntal melodies. The team gave up trying to make sense of the great babble and settled for recording everything that transpired. 
But dance is contagious, and soon Khalid and Bashir had coaxed the other men into a line that strutted back and forth while Iman clapped a rhythm, and Sung and Ladawan looked on with amused detachment. Caught up, Hassan broke from the line into a mezri, and Iman with him. They bent and swiveled, and they twisted their arms like serpents in challenge and response, while Khalid and Bashir clapped eleven-four time, and Mazir mimed throwing coins at them, until finally exhausted, they came to a panting halt face to face. It was only a moment they stood that way, but it was a very long moment, and whole worlds might have whirled about like Sufis while they caught their breath. Then Iman straightened her hijab, which the dance had tugged askew. Hassan thought he saw a dark curl of escaping hair on her shiny forehead. She gave him a high look, cocking her head just so, and departed for her tent. Hassan was left standing there, wondering if he was supposed to follow or not, while Sung and Misery looked at each other. He did pass by her tent on his way to sleep, and standing by the closed flap, he did not dare to lift it, said, When we return to earth, we will speak, you and I. He waited a moment, in case there was a reply, but there was none, unless the tinkling of wind chimes was her laughter. The morning dawned with mist. A fog had rolled in from the eastern sea and lay a soft blanket over everything. Hilltops emerged like islands from a sea of smoke. A few of the tallest buildings in Haven thrust above the fog, suggesting the masts of a sunken shipwreck. Frustrated, the drones crisscrossed the shrouded landscape, seeking what could be found on frequencies non-visual. Jens took the ultralight out again, and from a great height spied a speckling of islands on the horizon. Delighted, Sung placed them on the map, and, with droll humor, added, "'Here there be dragons,' to the blank expanse beyond." The intelligence dutifully created a virtual globe and dappled it in greens and browns and blues, yet it remained, for the most part, a disheartening black, like a lump of coal daubed with a few specks of paint. "'The Havenites came here from somewhere near where the sunbursters live,' Iman declared, tracing with an uncertain finger curly cues within the darkened part of the globe. "'If only we knew where. The cobaltic folk may be indigenes, but I think they come from a still a third place, and are strangers on these shores as well.' But fog is a morning sort of thing, and the sun slowly winnowed it. The park, lying as it did on a swell of land, emerged early, as if from a receding flood, and, as in any such ebb, was dotted with bits of debris left behind. There are five, Hassan told the others when he pulled his binoculars off. Two of the bodies lie together, but the other three lie solitary. One is a marine off the foreign ship. Suicide, wondered Iman, but why? Sung said, Not so strange. Hopelessness often follow unreasonable hope. Why was their hope unreasonable? Bashir challenged him, but Sung only spread his hands in a helpless gesture, and Bashir cursed him as an unbeliever. Hassan cased the binoculars. People will do things behind a curtain that they otherwise entertain only in their hearts. There is something disheartening and solitary about fog. I suspect there are other bodies in the bushes. But so many... Mazir asked with mixed horror and fascination, for the prophet, praise be upon him, had forbidden suicide to the faithful. Hassan turned to the telepilots. Khalid, Bashir, Ladawan, quickly, send your drones to the park and retrieve tissue samples from the corpses. Seed the bodies with micro-machines so Mazir can explore their inner structures. Glancing at Mazir, he added, that should please you. You've longed for a glimpse of their anatomy ever since we arrived. Mazir shook his head, but not this way. Not this way. 
Bashir cried in distress. Must you, cousin? Yet they did as they were told, and the drones swooped like buzzards onto the bodies of the dead. Clever devices no larger than dust motes entered through wounds and orifices, where they scurried up glands and channels and sinuses and took the meats and bounds of the bodies. Quickly, Hassan told them, before the folk from the city arrived to carry them off. The folk in the city may have other concerns, Iman said, when Hassan gave her a question in a glance, she added, other bodies. I don't understand, said Bashir. They seemed so happy yesterday at the peace ceremony. How can you know what they felt? Hassan asked him. We may have no name for what they felt. Yan said, maybe it was a sham and the sunbursters pulled a massacre during the night. But as a practical matter, Hassan doubted that. The ship had not borne enough marines to carry out such a task so quickly and with so little alarm. Before the fog had entirely dissipated, Hassan ordered the drones home, and thither they flew and gorged with the dead they had sucked from the bodies, ready to feed it to the waiting intelligence. On the scrubland south of the park, a covered wagon had left the road and stood now near the base of the misty mountain, exposed to the morning sun and bracketed by three tents and a picket line of six horses. Sensors warding the cliffside approach revealed five Batonites in various attitudes, tending the campfires, feeding the horses, and when the drones passed above, two of them turned their headballs to follow the heat track, and one sprang to a tripod and adjusted its position. A surveyor's tripod, Klaus said when Hassan showed him the image. They survey a new road, perhaps to the fishing villages in the southern delta. I think these folks have seen our drones, Hassan decided. But our drones are stealthed, Bashir objected. Yes, and hushed and cooled, but they still leave a heat footprint, and against the ocean chill of this morning's mist, they must stand out like a silhouette on the skyline. Still, among humans, said Iman, there are those who may hear the softest whisper, or see the shimmering air above the sands of Arub Akali. Is it so strange if some of our Batonites have glimpsed strange streaks of sourceless heat in the sky? Hassan continued to study the last, backward-glancing image captured by the drones as they passed over the surveying party. A short-statured Batonite crouched behind the tripod, his tentacles adjusting veneers on an instrument of some sort. If so, they may have taken a bearing on what they perceived. If they have, said Bashir, what can they do? The cliff is sheer. Hassan ordered that all drones be grounded for the time being, and that no one stand in sight of the cliff's edge. We can watch the city with the peepers we have already in place. Yans was especially saddened by the order, and said that he could still fly over the western slope of the mountains. But Hassan pointed out that to gain the altitude he needed, he must first circle over the very scrublands across which the surveying party trekked. It will be for only a little while, he told his team. Once they have laid out the road and have returned to the city, we will resume the flights. The one thing he had not considered was that the party might not be blazing a road. This did not occur to him until after Imam brought him the strange report from the intelligence. There is no doubt, he asked her, for even when she had placed the two images side by side, Hassan could not be sure. Not so the intelligence, which, considering only data, was not distracted by strangeness. None at all. The images are identical down to the last eigenface. The surveyor in your road party is the same individual who followed the flight of the drone on the night the blue planet rose. Sung listened and said, Remarkable! First Batonite twice seen! Hassan picked up the first image and saw again the headball turned against the grain of that agitated crowd. I do not trust coincidence, he said. I think he has been taking vectors on each sighting of a heat trail and has set out to find their source.
Iman sensed his troubled mind. Should we prepare to evacuate? No, said Bashir. When you are more seasoned, young cousin, Hassan told him, you may give the orders. To Imam, not yet, but all may depend on what is under the tarp on his wagon. Which was, as they learned a few days later, a hot-air balloon. Klaus was delighted. Yeah, very like Bismarck's age. Railroads, telegraphs, sailing ships with steam, and now balloons. The technological congruence. Sink what it implies. Hazan did not wait to hear what it implied, but walked off by himself, away from the telepilot booths and the tent flaps snapping in the dry mountain breeze. Iman followed at a distance. He paused at the shimmering gate and passed a few words with Khalid that Iman did not hear. Then he continued through the meadow, his legs kicking up the sparkling colored pollen from the knee-high flowers, until he reached the place where the wonderfall plummeted from the very top of the world. There he stood in silence, gazing into the depths of the pool. Mist filled the air, saturated it, until it seemed only a more tenuous extension of the pool itself. After watching him for a while, Iman approached and stood by his side. Still he said nothing. When a few moments had gone past, Iman took his hand in hers, not in any forward way, but as one person might comfort another. "'I wonder where it goes,' he said at last, his voice distant beneath the steady roar. "'All the way into the heart of the world, I think, but no one will ever know. Who could enter that pool without being crushed under by the force of the water?' Who could ever return against that press to tell us? Will you order evacuation? She had to bend close to his ear to make herself heard. Do you think we should? I think we should meet these people. Hassan turned to regard her, which brought them very close together. The better to hear over the roar, he told himself. We are not forbidden contact, Iman insisted. Circumstances vary from world to world. When to make contact is a judgment each captain must make. Though few are called upon to make it, I never have. Concanon never did. Life is rare, sentient life rarer still. Sentient life robust enough to endure contact, a jewel. Your flying flowers were not sentient. No, they were only beautiful. He laughed. You are as hidden as this world. Shall I remove the hijab? Fingers twitched toward her headscarf. He reached out and held her wrists, keeping her hand still. It is not the hijab that hides you. You could remove all of your clothing and reveal nothing. Are the Batonites beautiful, too? You told us that once. Yes. Yes, they are, in their own way. But they prepare for war and cry defiance and dance when enemies make friends, and sometimes, in the dark, they kill themselves. How can we go and never know who they are? Hassan released her and, stooping, picked up a fallen branch of six-elder wood. Like all such vegetation in that place, it was punkish in its texture, breaking easily into corded strings and fibers. It doesn't matter. Then, seeing as she had not heard him over the roar of the falls, he came very close to her face. Our curious friend will have his balloon aloft before we could gather up this scatter of equipment and pack it away. And we cannot hide ourselves in this meadow, if he can see our heat. So the decision to initiate contact is his, not mine, whether he knows it or not. He threw the branch into the churning water to the pool, and the maelstrom took it, and it was gone. Hassan stared after it for a while, then turned to go. Iman placed her hand in the crook of his arm and walked with him. She said when they were away from the wonderfall, and voices could be voices once again, and neither shouts nor whispers, One other thing you could do. What? 
We have the laser pistols in the bus lockers. You could burn a hole in his balloon before he rises from the ground. Yes, a hole mysteriously burned through the fabric, a fine way to conceal our presence. As you said, we cannot conceal ourselves in any case. To burn his balloon would buy us the time to leave unobserved. Yes, but that's not what you want. No, I want to meet them. But you need to consider all your options. Can the intelligence translate adequately for a meeting? Who can know until we try? Hassan laughed. You're becoming like me. Is that so bad? It is terrible. One Hassan is more than enough. One Iman will barely suffice. The others had gathered at the pavilion, some at the ropes, as if waiting for the command to strike camp. The ultralight technicians were gathered in a group at one end of the camp. Whichever the decision, they would be leaving on the next supply run. Bashir caught Hassan's eye, and there was a pleading in his face. Only Sung remained engrossed in his instruments. The world could end. God could clap his hands and mountains dissipate like the clouds, and Sung would only monitor the opacity and the density of their vapors. To the technicians, Hassan gave a comp pad containing his interim report and told them to carry it straight to the director's office on their return. I have called for a contact follow-up team, Bashir told some of the others. Bashir and some of the others let out a cheer, which Hassan silenced with a glare. I think our Batonite balloonist has shown sufficient enterprise that he deserves the fruit of it. But this decision has come to us too quickly, and I dislike being rushed. Passing Mazir on the way to his own pavilion, Hassan clapped his old colleague on the shoulder. Once we have established contact, you will no longer need wonder about this world's ecology. Their own scholars will give you all the information you want. Mazir shook his head sadly. It won't be the same. Later, Hassan noticed that Sung had not moved from his monitors. Through long acquaintance, Hassan knew this was not entirely unworldliness on the man's part. So he joined the other at the astronomy board, though for several moments he did not interrupt Sung's concentration, allowing his presence to do for a question. After a while, Sung said, as if to the air, At first I think moonlit. Strange skies, these. And we not know all out there. But orbit very low. Ninety-minute orbit. He pointed to a tiny speck of light that crossed the screen. Every ninety-minute he come back. Yesterday five, today ten, maybe twelve. What are they? Hassan asked. You said moonlets? Only see when catch sunlight. Maybe many more, not see. Perhaps Al-Batan has a string of small moons. But Sung was shaking his head. Two big moons sweep low orbit free. Then what? Men go to moon, long time past, go to Mars. I think now we see. Rocket ships? Hassan stood up, away from the screen where last night's telescope data replayed and looked into the pale, cloud-shrouded sky. Rocket ships, he whispered. I think, said Sung, from Blue Planet. Sung's discovery added another layer of urgency to the team's activities. A second sapient, and in the same system, said Iman. Unprecedented, said Mizir. We should leave now, said Klaus. And Yance agreed. We can stay hid from the folks here, but maybe not from those newcomers. We have to stay, Bashu cried. Sung himself said nothing more than that this would complicate matters, and it seemed as if the complications bothered him quite more than other possibilities. Hassan retreated to his tent to escape the din, and there he pondered matters. But not too long. There was the balloonist to consider. Balloons and spaceships, 
and here the earthlings sat, with a naggy hypergate, in vehicles that could travel in the wrong direction, and it was the earthlings who were considering flight. There was something very funny about that. When Hassan emerged from his tent, everyone else stopped what he or she was doing and turned toward him in expectation. Prepare for D&D, &D, was all he said, and turned back into his tent. He heard someone enter behind him and knew before turning it was Iman. Iman said, Destruction and demolition, but... But what? Hassan said. We cannot get everything into the buses quickly enough. We must destroy what we cannot take. But you said we would stay. The equation has been altered. The risks now outweigh the opportunities. What risks? You heard, Klaus. Folks with spaceships have other capabilities. We've grown careless observing the Batonites. These, these Azraki, will know radar, radio, laser, powered flight. Perhaps they know stealth and micro-machines. I would rather they did not know of other buses. But the chance to observe first contact from a third-party perspective. We will stay and observe as long as possible, but with one hand on the latch handles of our other buses. Soon counted at least twelve ships in orbit, and the Batonites began rearming some while ago. I do not think we will observe a first contact. The team powered down non-essentials, transferred vital samples and data to the other buses, policed the meadow of their artifacts. Mazir drafted the ultralight technicians who had been acting detached about the whole affair. They reported to a different section chief than did the survey team. But the old man leered at them. There are no idlers on planet, he told them. Hassan spent the evening redrafting his report. The next morning, Sung told him that the ships had begun to land. One ship fire retroburn while in telescope view. Intelligent extrapolate landing in antipodes. Other ships not appear on schedule, so maybe also de-orbit. Hassan passed the word for everyone to stay alert and imposed radio silence on the team. We are no longer so remote here on our mountain as we once were. We must be cautious with our drones, with radar pings, with anything that these newcomers might be able to detect. He did not suppose that there was anything especially remarkable about their alpine meadow, that the orbiting ships would have studied it from aloft, but he had the tent struck, they clashed with the colors, and moved the primary monitors beneath the stand of six-seater. He ordered Khalid and Ladawan to bring the other buses to idle, so that they would be a little out of phase with the right brain, and in theory impossible to detect by any but other instruments. When they had all gathered under the trees, Hassan did a head count and discovered that Bashir was missing. With many curses he set out to look for him and found him by the edge of the cliff that overlooked the plains. Bashir lay prone with a pair of enhanced binoculars pressed to his eyes. Hassan, too, dropped prone upon the grass beside him. Strange grass, too yellow grass, velvety and oily and odd to the touch. Hassan remembered that he was on a distant and alien world and was surprised to realize that for a time he had forgotten. Brashir said, Do you think he knows? About the ships in orbit, I mean. Hassan knew his cousin was speaking of the balloonist. He knew they were coming. They all knew. When Al-Azraq came into opposition, the ships would come. Someone must have worked out the orbital mechanics. He's coming to ask for help. Against the Azraki? Yes, they're brave folk, regimented companies in squares firing one-shot rifles, field cannon like Mehmet Ali had. And against what? People in spaceships. What chance do they have, Hassan, unless we help them? 
surrender to God and do good deeds. Is that not what God said through his messenger? Praise be upon him. Bashir, there are nine of us, plus the technicians for the ultralight. We have no arms but the four lasers and the weapons lockers. Only Klaus has any knowledge of military theory, and it is only theory. What can we possibly do? The attack was swift and brutal and came without warning. The shuttlecraft flew in low from the west, screaming over the crests of the mountains, shedding velocity over the ocean as it banked and turned. There were three of them, shaped like lozenges, their heat shields still glowing dully on their undersides. Scramjets, said Klaus into the headset, and the intelligence heard and compiled the observation with the visuals. Bring the cameras to bear, said Hassan. Bring the cameras to bear. One is landing in the park, the second on the far side of the city. It may land in the swamp and be mired. Ladawan will take the chance. Send a drone over that way, on a narrow beam. Yance, if the invaders put anything between us and the drone, destroy the drone immediately. Where did the third shuttle go? Where is it? Klaus, your assessment. Mid-21st century equivalent, the German said. Scramjet SSTOs. Look for smart bombs, laser targeting, hopper hunters, high-density flechette rifles with submunitions. Oh, those poor bastards. Oh, those poor bastards. Black flowers blossomed in the sky. The Havanites have their field guns to maximum elevation. Low-energy shells bursting into air, but too low to matter. Ach, for an AA battery. You're choosing sides, Klaus. The technologist lowered his binoculars. Yes, naturally, he snapped, and the binoculars rose again. It is not our quarrel, Hassan said. But the Rumi was not listening to him. The second shuttle is in the swamp, Ladawan reported. I do not think the Havenites expected that. They have few defenses on that side. I do not think the Azraki expected so either, Klaus said. These shuttles have only the limited maneuverability. More than the first American shuttles, but not much more. They may have little choice in where they land. Where did the third one go? Hassan asked. Bashir raised a ululation. It was a hit! It was a hit! It flew into a shell burst! It's down in the surf! A lucky shot, said Klaus, but he too raised a fist and shook it at the sky. Listen to them cheer in the city, said Iman, who was monitoring the ears that they had planted during their long observation and study. The other two shuttles released missiles, which flew into the city, and two of the tallest buildings coughed and shrugged and slid into ruin. Smoke and flame rose above the skyline. Hassan turned to Imam. Did the cheering stop, he asked, and Imam turned away from him. No, show me, Klaus said to Sung, bending over the screen where the drone's feed was displayed. The Chinese pointed. Here, here, here. Klaus turned to Hassan. I was wrong. The third shuttle made by intent the ocean landing. They have triangulated the city. Park, swamp, ocean. Look at it there, see? It floats. They must be for both the water or ground landing designed. Sung said, Ah, I find radio traffic, feeding data stream to intelligence. He put the stream on audio, and everyone in the team paused to listen for a moment. There was something liquid, something squishy about the sounds. Frogs croaking, iguanas barking. Not computer signals, but voices. The sounds had an analog feel to them. Bashir said, The balloon is up! Hassan turned to stare at him. Are you certain? The man must be mad to go up in this. Iman, Bashir, Khalid, go to the cliff. I will come shortly. Hassan could not take his eyes from the dying city. 
Upping the magnification on his binoculars, he saw troops emerge from the first shuttle, the one that had landed in the park. Close images, he cried. I want close images of those people. There are not very many of them, Mizir ventured. There do not need to be very many of them, Klaas told him. They will be light airborne infantry. They are to hold a landing zone for the mothership. You're guessing, Hassan said. Guns natürlich. The landing force scattered into teams of three and fanned across the park. The Azraki were bipedal, shorter than the Batonites, stockier. They wore flat black uniforms of a leathery material. Helmets with masks covered their faces, if anything like faces lurked under those masks. Skin, where it showed, was scaly and shiny. Reptiloids, said Mazir, half delighted to have a new race to study, but not, under the circumstances, fully so. The works of God are wonderfully diverse, but he uses precious few templates. Speculate, Hassan said. What am I seeing? The helmets are heads-up displays, Klaus said. The mothership has in low-orbit satellites placed, and the lizards receive on the battle space the information. If they are reptiloid, said Mazir, they would likely come from a dry place. Klaus pursed his lips. But Earth has many aquatic reptiles, not so? And Alazrak is watery. So it does, cried Mazir. But there are yet deserts. Besides, those may be fish scales, amphibians. What do you expect from me from a glimpse of a single bare arm? Mazir, Hassan cautioned him, and the exobiologist took a deep, calming breath and turned away. Hassan! It was Bashir's voice on the radio. The balloonist is halfway up, but the winds are contrary, keeping him away from the cliff. Hassan cursed and broke his own rule long enough to bark, Radio silence! He turned. What is it, for the love of God? Khalid, I told you to go to the cliff and wait for the balloonist. Khalid glanced at the progress of the battle on the large plasma screen. Not a fair fight, is it? Here, sir, you may need this. Hassan looked down at his hand and he saw that the gate warden had given him a laser pistol. There are only four laser pistols, Khalid explained. Two in each bus. Ladawan and I keep one each. We are trained marksmen. I give one to you because you are team captain. Who gets the fourth? Warden, if the Israqi attack us here, four laser pistols will do no good. Against a cruise missile? Sir, they will do more good than if we are utterly disarmed. Hassan tucked the pistol into his waistband. Klaus? The German lowered his binoculars, saw what the gate warden had, and shook his head. Military strategy is to me small squares on a map screen. I have never fired a handgun. Give it to Yance. Americans make the fickery to pistols. Sung reached up from his console seat. I take. Khalid hesitated. Do you know how to use one? I show you by burning rabbit. He pointed to a six-legged rodent on the far side of the meadow. Khalid did not ask for the proof, but handed over the pistol. Sung laid it on his console. Do you shoot well? Hassan asked him after Khalid had gone to the cliffside. No, but now he does not give pistol to Yance. Too young, like your cousin, too excitable. Better pistol with me. I not no use, but I know I not no use. The Batonites must have expected a landing in the park, Klaus announced. They have a regiment in the woods concealed. Now they charge while the Israqi, they are scattered. Hassan paused in the act of leaving and watched while ranks and files decked in yellow marched from the woods to the drum claps of their tympanums and their lowered arms. He saw the corporals bawl orders. He saw the ranks dress themselves, and two banners, the Six Eagle and some device that was probably the regiment's own, rose aloft. 
The first rank knelt, and both it and the second rank fired in volley. Then they sidestepped to allow the next two ranks to pass through and repeat the process while they reloaded. They managed the evolution twice before the invaders tore them apart. High-velocity rounds from scattered mobile kill squads firing from shelter shredded the pretty uniforms and the fine banners and splattered the six cedars and ironwood and the chartreuse oil grass with glistening pools of yellow-green ichor. A few cannon shots from the shuttle completed the slaughter. Nothing was left of the regiment but twitching corpses and body parts. Hassan wondered whether the young soldier they had once watched make love to his sweetheart lay among them. Oh, les braves gens, Klaus whispered, echoing a long-dead king of Prussia at a long-forgotten battle. Hassan could bear to see no more. Record everything, he barked. The rest of you, get those buses packed. Power down any equipment whose source might be traced by those... lizards. Klaus! Klaus! Estimate the invaders' capabilities. What can we operate safely? At the moment, the Israqi are... preoccupied, but sooner or later they'll bring down aircraft, or a satellite will chance to look down on this meadow, leave nothing behind that those folks may find useful. And they might find anything useful. He turned to walk to the cliffside where the balloonist was attempting his ascent. Klaus said... But I thought we might... Hassan silenced him with a glare. Then he reached the edge of the six-seater grove that grew close to the cliffside. Hassan saw Iman monitoring the balloon through her goggles. She seemed an alien creature herself, with her head wrapped in a scarf and her face concealed by the glasses. He's using a grappling line, Bashir announced as Hassan joined them. He whirls it around and then throws it toward the cliff. Has he seen you? No, it was Iman. "'who answered without taking her eyes off the balloonist. "'A dangerous maneuver,' she added. "'He could foul his mooring rope or rake the balloon above him. "'We've been watching the battle,' Bashir said, "'on our hand comms. "'Iman lowered her glasses and turned around. "'Hassan glanced at Khalid, "'who squatted on his heels a little behind the others in the brush. "'But the warden's face held no expression. "'Hassan rubbed his fist and did not look at any of them. "'It's not a battle. It's a massacre.' I think the Batonites have killed two Azraki, maybe. The invaders evacuated their wounded into their shuttle, so who can say? We have to do something, Bashir cried. Hassan whirled on him. Do we? What would you have us do, cousin? We have no weapons but the four handguns. Sung is clever, and perhaps he could create a super-weapon from the components of our equipment, but I do not think Sung is quite that clever. Jans could fly out in the ultralight and perhaps drop the gas chromatograph on someone's head but he could never do that twice. Iman turned round again. Stop that! Stop mocking him! He wants to help! We all do! I want him to face reality. We can do nothing but watch and record. We could send one of the buses back to Earth, Bashir entreated him, and show them what's happening here. They'll send help. They'll send the Legion or the American Marines, and we'll see how those lizards like being on the other side of the boot. What makes you think that the Union, or the Americans, or anyone would send so much as a policeman? What interests do they have here? Bashir opened his mouth and closed it, and opened it a second time. They, they'd have to. These people need help. And if they did send the Legion, Hassan continued remorselessly, every last trooper would have to come through that gate. The Israqi may be brutal, but they cannot be stupid. One cruise missile to take out the gate, and the whole expeditionary force would be trapped. "'cut off from home forever. "'Or the Azraki would simply pick off whoever came through, "'seize the buses and... 
What general would be mad enough to propose such a plan? What politician fool enough to approve it? What legionnaire suicidal enough to obey? Khalid spoke up. And you haven't yet asked how we would move a force large enough to matter down a sheer cliff onto the plains. Thank you, Warden, Hassan said, but I think my cousin begins to understand. But there is one thing we can do, he added quietly. Bashir seized on hope. What? What can we do? Little enough. We can give information. If the intelligence has mastered enough of their speech, we can tell our balloonist friend about asymmetric warfare, about the Spanish guerrilla that tormented Napoleon, about Tito's partisans. Will that help? Hassan wanted to tell him no, that few irregular forces had ever triumphed without a secure refuge or a regimented army to back them. The guerrilla had had Wellington, Tito's partisans, the Red Army. Yes, he told Bashir. Khalid, who may have known better, said nothing. He's latched hold, said Iman. What? The balloonist, she told him. His grapple. He's pulling the balloon toward the edge of the cliff to moor it. Ah, well, time to welcome the poor bastard. Why? asked Khalid, of no one in particular. With all that is happening to his city, does he insist on reaching this peak? I think, said Hassan, because he has nothing else left to reach for. The Batonite headball cannot show expression, at least no expression that humans can read. Yet it was not hard to discern the emotions of the balloonist when, after he had clambered from the balloon's basket onto solid ground and secured it by a rope to the stump of a tree, the waiting humans rose from concealment. The Batonite reared nearly vertical, waving his tentacled upper arms in the air, and staggered backward one step, then another. No! said Iman. The cliff! and she moved toward him. Groping behind into the basket, the balloonist pulled out a musket, and before Hassan could even react to the sight, fired a load of shot that ripped Iman across her throat and chest. Hassan heard a pellet pass by him like an angry bee, and heard, too, Bashir cry out in pain. Grape shot is not a high-velocity round. It did not throw Iman back. She stood in place, swaying, while her hijab turned slowly from checkerboard to black crimson. She began to turn toward Hassan, with a puzzled look on her face, and Hassan thought she meant to ask him what had happened. But the act unbalanced her, and sighing, she twisted to the ground. Hassan caught her, and lowered her gently the rest of the way. Speaking her name, he yanked the sodden hijab away, and held her head to his breast. Her hair was black, he noted, black and wound tightly in a coiled braid. The Batonite was meanwhile methodically reloading his musket, ramming a load down the muzzle, preparing for a second murder. With a cry, Hassan rose to his feet, tugged the pistol from his waistband, and aimed it at the thing that had come in the balloon. The red targeting spot wavered across the alien's headball. The laser would slice the leathery carapace open, spilling not brains, but something like a ganglion that served to process sense impressions before sending them to the belly. Hassan shifted his aim to the belly, to the orifice from which might emerge slimy, unclean organs, behind the diaphragm of which Mazir had named the creature's life and thought. He almost fired. He had placed his thumb on the activation trigger, but Khalid shoved his hand down and fired his own laser four times with cruel precision, burning the hands of the beast, so that it dropped the musket and emitted sounds like a mad percussionist. With a fifth and more sustained burn, Khalid ran a gash along the body of the balloon hovering in the sky beyond. The colorful fabric sighed, much like Iman had sighed, and crumpled in much the same way too, hanging for a while on the rocky escarpment while the wind teased its folds. 
Hassan dropped his pistol to the dirt unfired. He turned and walked into the alien cedars. Khalid indicated the thrumming prisoner. Wait, what are we to do with him? Hassan did not look back. Throw it over the cliff. Sung found Hassan at last in the place where he ought to have looked first, by the endless falls and bottomless pool at the far end of the mountain valley. There the team leader knelt on a prayer rug that he had rolled out on the damp earth and rock and prostrated himself again and again. Soon watched for a time. He himself honored his ancestors and followed, when the mood struck, an eightfold path. Perhaps there was a god behind it all. Perhaps not. His ancestors were not forthcoming on the subject. Soot from the burning city had begun to settle on the plateau. Explosions boomed like distant thunder. If that were the work of God, it was one beyond Sung's comprehending. Hassan sat back on his haunches. Why did she have to die? he cried loudly enough that even the roar of the falls was overcome. Sung wondered momentarily whether Hassan had addressed him or his God before he answered. Because pellets sever carotid artery. Hassan hesitated, then turned around. What sort of reason is that? No reason, Sung said. Westerners think reason, always reason, but no reason. Shit happens. Life is real. Someday you escape. Do not presume to question God. God's not answer, however often asked. Maybe they not know either. I can't even blame that poor bastard in the balloon. Hassan covered his face with his hands. His planet has been invaded, his people massacred. The proudest achievements of his civilization exposed as less than nothing. What were we to him but more invaders? Tell me Khalid did not throw him over the cliff. He know not lawful order, but survival up here more cruel. Without balloon, how he descend? With hands burned so, how he fend? It was my fault, Sung. What sort of captain am I? I let Albatan lull me. I should never have allowed Iman to approach him like that without taking time to calm his fears. Not matter, said Sung. He no fear, he hate. What do you mean? How can you know that? Sung spread his hands. Maybe intelligent not translate well. But say, head ball drum, hate and loathing. We question him, Mizir, Khalid, me. This not first visit from Blue Planet. Azraki come once before. Come in peace, trade, discovery, I think. And Batanites kill all for defiling holy soil of Batin. Without provocation? A rival provocation enough, balloonists say, as rocky ship damaged, but some escape, come to haven. Warn of terrible revenge next approach, but Batanites not care. No logic, just fury. Kill survivors, too. Balloonist, one of them. Proud to defend Al-Batan. Remember, Hassan, he bring balloon here before Azraki land, and bring gun already loaded. Not know who up here, or why, only someone up here, come to kill, not to greet. Xenophobes. Hassan could not reconcile that with the gentle, carefree folk he had been observing for so long. And yet the one never did preclude the other. Sung shook his head. Balloon is not hate, Azraki, only hate that they come. Does the difference matter? And is the Azraki punishment not worse than the original crime? Hassan did not expect an answer. He did not think there ever would be an answer. He rolled his prayer rug and slung it over his shoulder. Are the buses ready to go? 
Sung nodded, waiting for a captain. Is... is Iman aboard? In specimen locker. Hassan winced. I'm ordering Khalid to seal the gate. No one comes back here. Ever. Too dangerous, Sung agreed. Not in the way you think. From a world named The Hidden by humans, humans departed. The gate closed on a pleasant mountain glade, far above the flaming cities on the plains below. Gates swung where God willed, and man could only submit. Perhaps they opened where they did for a reason, but it was not man's place to question God's reasons. Hassan Maklouf was their leader, a man who had walked on eighteen worlds, and bore in consequence eighteen wounds. To ten of those worlds he had followed another, to eight others had followed him, from four he had escaped with his life. With two he had fallen in love. On one he had lost his soul. There you go. Michael, thank you so much. Don't forget, copyright is Michael F. Flynn. Fingers crossed I might get some more stories off, Michael. And a big thank you to Mike Boris. Mike, like I said at the beginning of the story, that is just a... A cracking narration. Thank you so much. More stories narrated by Mike Burris coming soon. Next up is Film Talk. Rod Barnett. Rod, how are you doing, sir? Hello, everybody. Part of the pattern of movie releases from Hollywood Studios is standard. January and February are dead months. Those are the months where Hollywood generally doesn't want to put out what they consider to be high-quality films or films that they think will make a whole lot of money because they're pretty sure that those big movies that they put out at the end of the year right before award season closes down around Christmas, those films are still going to be in the theaters raking in the cash, especially if they were given a limited release to begin with. And to get in their way is a bad idea because you want the movies that are currently in theaters to be the uppermost in people's minds when they're thinking about the Oscars and the Golden Globes. So for years and years and years, January and February are when they put out movies that they just don't think are going to be well received. Luckily for genre fans, that means that there's a lot of really neat stuff that comes out that otherwise has flown under the radar. You'll find a lot of really interesting films, and don't get me wrong, you'll find a lot of bad ones. But the beautiful thing about being a genre fan, science fiction, horror, or otherwise, is staring at January and February's movie listings and thinking, hmm, somewhere in there is a classic waiting to be discovered. Now, that doesn't always work out. Don't get me wrong. Whew, there are some dogs. But sometimes you get lucky. And this year, January has given us a couple of little gems. And strangely, they're both post-apocalyptic stories, one of my favorite genres. And both movies were made by a pair of brothers. Strange. The first is a film called Daybreakers, which is a science fiction vampire film, something that I think there needs to be a lot more of. But... This one was made by the Spirig Brothers, a pair of Australian filmmakers who, before this movie, had made one undead film, or shall I say, zombie picture called Undead, that 
While it was highly praised in some quarters, I found it a little too, well, flat. It wasn't a great film. It was interesting, and it definitely showed that the Spirit Brothers had talent, but as a film, I just didn't think it worked as well as it could. Boy, have they self-corrected. This one, a sharp little movie, and made on a budget of only $20 million, which is chicken feed these days in Hollywood. It manages to look like it costs a whole lot more, and it has a whole lot more thrills and a good deal more power and strength as a narrative than a whole lot of films with much higher budgets. In the year 2010, a plague has transformed much of the world's population into vampires. Indeed, it's transformed the vast majority. Dalton, played by Ethan Hawke, is a hematologist, that is a blood scientist, a blood specialist, employed by a pharmaceutical company that is the chief and seemingly only supplier of blood for the American population. This company is operated by Charles Bromley, played by Sam Neill. But as we enter the story, time has begun to run out for the race. The human population is nearing extinction, and vampires are working overtime to capture and farm every remaining human for their blood. Or, as Dalton is doing, to try to find a blood substitute before time runs out. See, when deprived of blood for an extended period of time, vampires lose their human-like characteristics and begin to transform into winged, bat-like monsters they call subsiders. They have a much diminished mental capacity in this state, and they tend to be rather murderous. They lose the ability to speak and are driven strictly by their impulse to feed. However, an underground group of humans makes a remarkable discovery, one which has the power to save the human race. It seems there just might be a way to cure vampirism. Going into this film, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect, but boy, I came out pretty happy. It's not a perfect film, but my goodness, it's a darn solid one. Daybreakers puts a nice spin on the usual horror movie cliches with vampirism once again front and center as a monstrous thing that, while it holds a kind of sick allure, is still an unnatural and harsh state. This is a nice switch from uh, what we're seeing these days with the Twilight films and things of that ilk where we're once again entering into a cycle of romanticizing vampirism and turning the vampire into some kind of fetishistic thing. I'm thinking about True Blood here a little bit as well. This is a nice switch for me. I like my vampires monstrous, blood-sucking, and mean-spirited. Even if there's the occasional vampire that's nice and trying not to kill everybody. But one of the neat things about this storyline is its science fiction element. The film neatly extrapolates into the future several very interesting ideas, none of which I'll try to spoil here. But the neatest thing about it is that it takes that step that I fear would be almost completely natural for most of the human race if this type of scenario ever played out for real. In other words, anybody staring at something that would give them immortality, no matter what the cost may or may not be, would grab it and grab it just as fast as they could. And that's the fascinating thing about the problem at the heart of the vampire's situation in the story. It's not that they've drained all the humans, it's that all the humans want to be vampires and have become vampires. You can't feed on yourself, they make that pretty clear. And this movie takes that and runs with it. 
Plus, the movie's got some neat action scenes. Like I say, some of the stuff they put on screen, I'm hard-pressed to believe this film only cost $20 million. They did a fine job here. It's got a nice cast with Ethan Hawke and Sam Neill turning in nice performances, but the film really being stolen by Willem Dafoe as a, shall we say, reformed vampire with a crossbow. This is a fun little movie. It's not a great movie. It's not a classic. It's got some surprises, and it's got some neat ideas, and it is worth your time if you're a fan of science fiction vampire tales. Now, if Daybreakers gave us a plague ending the world, or creating the stage for the world to end, the Book of Eli gives us an event called The Flash, which I'm assuming was probably a nuclear holocaust, but we never get specifics. Nevertheless, the film takes place 31 years after said event, and we have Denzel Washington as Eli, a man traveling on foot across this standard post-apocalyptic landscape, going somewhere. The only information he gives us, the only information he seems to have, is that he's going west. The film tells of several of his adventures along this particular hard road, encountering motorcycle gangs and a small fledgling town that one man is trying to build back into a kind of civilization. Eli is carrying in his backpack a very large book that we can tell from the cover, is obviously a Bible. And the man running the small town that he comes to is attempting very hard to find a copy of the Bible. It seems that after the Holocaust, all Bibles and all religious works in general were sought out and destroyed by the survivors of the Holocaust in an attempt to do away with the religious fervor that apparently a large number of people felt caused the destruction. The Book of Eli is a return to filmmaking after several years by the Hughes brothers, a pair of twin brothers who are best known for films like Menace to Society, Dead Presidents, and From Hell. Very, very competent technicians and also pretty decent storytellers. It's nice to have them back making movies, and to be honest, I would never have thought they would make this kind of film, but I'm glad they did. The Book of Eli surprised me on several different levels. First, by being a return to the great old form of post-apocalyptic movies from the 1980s. Same kind of landscape as the Road Warrior and Mad Max films of the rip-off type that came afterwards. The desolate landscape, the lone warrior, the bad guy who thinks that strength means you're good and right. All the horrible probabilities of what is most likely in such a dystopian scenario as the most base elements of human nature come into conflict with our better angels against a stark background of death and destruction and hopelessness. It does these things very well, and it even manages to get the second half of the post-apocalyptic story equation right as well by showing the way forward to possible redemption and a phoenix-like rise from the ashes for the human race. Another way it surprised me was in its desire to show how faith can be both good and bad and to draw these two views into contrast with the two main characters. Faith is rarely a part of post-apocalyptic cinema except in the mostly background sense of having people bravely show faith in the hero and his or her ability to kick ass and save the day. Because that's something else the film gets right about the genre too. Post-apocalyptic films are almost always action movies. 
at least in the classic 80s sense. The Book of Eli is certainly that. The film is constructed around a very well-shot and choreographed series of fights of different types that are absolutely fascinating to watch. Washington handles himself perfectly, whether wielding a gun or a short sword, and there is never a moment of doubt about Eli's ability to handle himself smartly in a battle. But the size of the force arrayed against him does make you worry about his rather difficult path. Both Washington and Gary Oldman, who plays his antagonist, are good. Even if Gary Oldman's character is a little over the top at times in his evilness, But when we are introduced to any person on screen for the first time as they intently read a book about Mussolini, you have to suspect that there are fascistic tendencies on the horizon. Nice supporting roles are given to Jennifer Beals, who has turned into a pretty good actress in the last decade or so. Musician Tom Waits has a small role, and to be honest, he should just be in every film to add flavor and heft to small parts. Just sign him up right now, put him in the cast, and move forward. Michael Gambon shows up, who uh, most people will recognize as uh, Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies. And there's even another neat little cameo surprise actor who shows up later in the film, but I won't spoil that. So there we have it. So far, 2010 has given us a couple of small little films that are actually worth seeing. Not perfect, not classics, but pretty darn good, and surprises both of them. What more can you ask for as a genre fan? So, I'll keep uh, going out to the theaters and seeing what I can see and hoping for the best. I'll report back here again next month and maybe, just maybe, I'll find some more gems to report about. Eh, Then again, sometimes it's more fun to get really angry about the films that just don't work out. And in January and February, I'm betting there are going to be more of those than there are Goodens. Talk to you next time, folks. Again, Rod, that's, you know, what can I say? Thank you so much. Month in, month out. Is that the right words? <laughs> you know what I mean? Thank you so much. That is Starship Sova's Oral Delights, show 122. Amazing stories, amazing fact articles, a fantastic bit of artwork, you know what I mean? And narrations which blow your mind. That is Starship Sova. Does she deserve a Hugo? You tell me. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A ventilation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.